0: Study Study Buddies, your one stop shop for everything we know about the academic field of game studies, or at least what we've read so far. I'm Cameron. I'm Michael. Did you hear me having to uh, remember that in real time? Mm hmm. That was pretty wild. It just it, it came to me like written in lightning mm-hmm. <laughs> as, <laughs> as I was talking. That was, that's good stuff. Uh, this is a show, in case you haven't heard it before, this is a show where we read books and we talk about them. We've mentioned it a few times over the past few episodes. Or we read books and game studies generally, not just books. Uh, we're not reading uh, Dick and Jane. <laughs> we're not reading uh, The Fall of the Roman Empire.
1: Well, uh, here I am pulling up our list of future titles, and right there is Dick and Jane. Uh-oh. Uh,
0: 2023, running out of books, Dick and Jane. Mm-hmm. Where is Spot? um uh, but uh if you haven't listened to the show before so sometimes we do uh canonical texts you know like uh the big things in game studies if you take a random class things are probably going to run into sometimes we do uh, newer books that we're interested in that are not quite canonical yet but uh we think will be really cool to check out sometimes we do big wild card books that are kind of related to game studies but not maybe directly related to game studies and this is somewhere between the the latter two Mm-hmm. This is kind of a newer book. It's from 2012. Um, we'll, we'll introduce the, the book in a minute. It's from 2012, uh, and it's kind of involved in game studies, but kind of not. You know, it, it makes some um, uh, gestures toward games, I would say, mm-hmm. but uh, it's not directly, you know, no one's defining the magic circle in here. <laughs> you know, no one's citing uh, Kawah over here. Procedural rhetoric does not come up. Huizinga mm-hmm. does, though. Uh, I believe it. The, uh, but yeah, so we're talking about, uh, Michael Saylor's 2012 book, As If Modern Enchantment and the Literary Prehistory of Virtual Reality. Really got VR in here in the title, despite VR not really. I mean, virtual reality is, uh, uh, wider in this book than it might be uh it on Steam <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: but uh but if you if you were just glancing at the title you might think this has to do with virtual reality i'm just i'm i'm really uh struck by the idea of like you know clicking the vr ta- uh tag on Steam and then finding like an ebook of the complete stories of Sherlock Holmes or something mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> there there should be that there should be is that a vr experience yet if if not listen okay let me let me take one step back. If you're a VR developer and you're looking for cool ideas, uh this is my original idea. Do not steal, okay? Mm-hmm. But I will come in and help you develop this. Uh Michael will come help as well. Here's the pitch. VR experience where you sit and read a book
1: in a delightful, warm library. Oh, that's that's uh that's a book that or a book. That's a game, that's reading simulator. Don't
0: don't tell me it's already invented, Michael. Come on.
1: It's it's the already there. Reading simulator no, on Steam. Check n- it out.
0: No, 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 no. The first rule of game development <laughs> is inventing things that already exist and pretending like they don't. I confidently believe that. That's oh, de- I've played enough that, video games to know that's the truth. That is probably yes, that's the case. Okay, fine, whatever. Uh, if it's I mean, already there, What was then... the
1: original reading simulator but when I killed the bookseller in Balmora <laughs> in Morrowind and then spent the rest <laughs> of the game living in their house and reading all of their books? Wait, does reading simulator have,
0: like, Space Invaders? Does, that, does it have a, uh, a raven pecking, pecking, pecking at my chamber door? <laughs> I don't think so. Oh, well, there we go. That's the innovation. Uh, invite me, come to my GDC talk titled Innovating Reading. Um a prehistory of the post history of reading simulation <laughs> games. <laughs> Michael, we read this book. hmm Um we read it on my recommendation. hmm Suggestion. I know people heard it live in the episode. Yeah. I just kind of popped off with it and we went with it. <laughs> <laughs> um but because I'd read this book. I, I read this book uh while working on my own book, which will be out next year. And uh, I, I read it, and I thought it was interesting. I thought it was a, 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 a an interesting book about how do people imagine things and how do they engage with things. And ultimately, weirdly enough, I uh, read it for my book and took a bunch of notes, and ended up like making one footnote about it or something. Mm-hmm. Like it didn't didn't end up being like a big big thing. Um, but uh, you've now read it, and yes. we're going to talk about it for like the next hour or so.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's um, from Oxford University. Tw- press uh from 2012 as you've already said uh sailor uh michael sailor the author is a professor in the department of history at the university of california davis uh, where his specialties are modern british and european intellectual and cultural history uh so this is a book that is actually have we ever done a history book like a straight-up history book in kind of this mode before for the show mm,
0: uh that's a good question i uh, the laxton book is probably mm. the closest book that i actually thought about that while reading it i was thinking uh this is a little bit of an outlier for us and also is gonna make for some really uh helpful uh explanations here i think because of the way that history, historians sometimes play a little bit fast and loose mm-hmm. uh, in, in a way that, is, that you don't normally associate with history, but, but we can get into that but uh, the way that claims get cited in history are different than the way that claims get cited in other disciplines. Mm-hmm. I guess the other one that I could say is um, uh, Carly Kasurik's book, Coin and mm-hmm. Operated Americans, which is a history book, but I, I feel like it's written from a cultural studies perspective. Yes. And so, you know, format wise, is very different. This is a history book written by someone who's in a department of history. Mm-hmm. Um, it has a very particular tone and a very particular kind of. Um, way that it narrativizes the past. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually taught a, I was teaching a course this semester, it's, it's now finished, but uh, teaching a course on, um, uh, feminism and labor. I think I've talked about it on the show maybe before. And the first book that we read was a history book and, uh, students didn't really, I had a harder time teaching it than I thought I would because they were not quite sure about this kind of disciplinary difference. Mm-hmm. um, you you know, where where some things don't show up as, I I don't know, we'll talk about when we get into it, but there's a different way that books are written in the discipline of history, um,
1: than in other fields. Right. Yeah. So because this is kind of disciplinarily a different sort of book, it's also one that I think we can work through in a slightly different way than normal. Um, I mean, we, we've, had various approaches to various types of books on the show in the past, but really the the big structure for Sailor's book here uh, is that it is uh, five chapters, an introduction, and then kind of a little postscript. Uh, and the introduction is kind of the lay of the land in terms of here is what this book is about. You know, very unsurprising. Mm-hmm. Like here here are kind of the big main claims here. Like in in brief, here is what this book is going to argue uh, the first two chapters then are the ones that are uh kind of analogous to what in other books we might call like method chapters right here's sort mm-hmm. of the um here's the theorist that I'm most deeply engaged with here are their ideas, and here's how those ideas apply to the thing that I'm looking at uh except uh for sailor um the first chapter is uh primarily a kind of like history of the ways that uh uh, Europe thought about the imagination uh, and then the second chapter is sort of the emergence of what Saylor calls uh, like the public sphere of the imagination uh, mm-hmm. and then the last three chapters are case studies of three specific authors who uh, do the things that Sailor thinks are interesting or worth talking about right kind of the, the, the clearest illustrations of the overall uh thing that Sailor is trying to get at which is uh what is you know kind of very strongly claimed in the title as this literary prehistory of virtual reality. So the, the, there's a lot of game studies stuff implied here uh that you know you may or, may or may not uh, uh want to pick up on on your own dear listener. Um but I think it's an interesting tactic, right? What Sailor is saying in a very big meta way is that what we think of today as um both virtual reality right something like say uh the facebookian metaverse uh but also like the uh franchise uh media universe right something like the marvel cinematic universe or something like that um these types of sort of persistent imagined worlds have a what he calls a literary prehistory that is there are various things that happen in the history of literature that provide sort of the grounding for these contemporary cultural developments and at one point he talks extensively about World of Warcraft for instance Uh, like Mm -hmm. it's a very interesting uh, angle right Uh, something that I am actually very sympathetic to as you know a literature person obviously to say that like hey did you know that mmos grow out of uh uh people writing each other letters about sherlock holmes or whatever um people love sherlock holmes (laughs) that's what i've learned from this book yeah people really like sherlock holmes um uh but that's that's like you know in, in sort of broadest strokes that's one of the things that this book is interested in and one of the things it's trying to argue is that there are certain kind of uh uh technologically mediated communicative social practices that arise at uh the sort of turn of the 20th century um sort of the, the one of the terms that uh sailor goes back to and it's like one of his one of his areas of specialty right is fin de siècle literature mm-hmm. um Uh, There are certain uh, cultural practices that arise in this time period that are kind of the uh, anticipations or direct antecedents of like basically contemporary fandom and uh, most especially like contemporary Internet mediated fandom.
0: Yeah, I, I I I guess you know this comes out in twenty twelve, and uh you know he says in the introduction maybe or the acknowledgement somewhere at the, at the front that this book was in the works for a very long time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you know you get a sense that if this had come out maybe a couple years later and maybe had been worked on, you know, uh, if if you just shift everything five years forward, basically is what I'm saying. That that yeah, the Marvel universe would get its own chapter. Mm-hmm. Um, or you know, it's it's interesting that things like Star Trek, Star Wars, um, uh, Transformers, uh, you know, My Little Pony, <laughs> there, there, there's a lot of these uh, extended universes that have kind of a weird rationalist basis to them, which is going to show up in this book, uh, that have emerged since the 1980s um, mm-hmm. and as like big cultural kind of behemoths. Um, that James Bond uh although I guess James Bond shows up a little bit here maybe um but anyway there are a lot of modern or you know contemporary i guess uh versions of this kind of thing that kind of get gestured at here uh but not uh you know uh we don't do a deep dive on them and I think it's just because, you know, Sailor is a historian of this time period and, and is more interested in showing us, like, the intellectual uh, genealogy mm-hmm. of where all this came from rather than, like, showing us how it plays out. I think it would be very easy to take this book and then, like, just smash it right into so many... I mean, you know, you were talking about uh, uh, going to Balmora and reading all the books before. Mm-hmm. Uh, that You know, this this is a book in some ways that explains, like... Uh, or helps us explain, doesn't fully explain, but helps us talk about and explain things like Elder Scrolls wiki you know, yeah. desire, uh-huh. um, you know the rationalism that's associated with that and like resolving contradiction and trying to make everything understandable. It, it really is, I think, very helpful for getting at that, but, but we'll talk about that as we go through the book, I think.
1: Mm-hmm. So the introduction, uh, lays out, as I said, kind of the groundwork here, uh, big idea then, uh, sailor uh, is sort of relying on a, a notion of history that is probably familiar if you've like been through grad school and had to read this stuff or like maybe have taken a couple of undergraduate courses on it. But um, a a version of uh, history that comes out of the, uh, how would you describe him? Max Weber. Like, is, is he a historian, sociologist? Like, I think he's a sociologist. Yeah, sociologist. Okay. I think
0: a founding figure for sociology. Yes,
1: okay. So sociologist Max Weber, Um, uh, about the way that uh, and I'm, you know, going to do some big uh, air quotes here. uh, So imagine my fingers, you know, wiggling listener um, about how the West has become uh, what he calls disenchanted, uh, which for Weber is essentially a way of talking about how over the course of like European history from, you know, whatever point in the past to about like the point that we start calling it modernity, uh, religion, uh, ceases to be kind of a central point of uh, communal experience. And it recedes into sort of like the background of your life as a new field of kind of secular enterprise, uh, emerges. And this is, um, of course, intertwined with, uh, things like the development of contemporary capitalism, um, and uh also like in in the bigger like religious sense right that the protestant reformation uh and and so on and so forth so the idea for weber is that uh as uh the world becomes modernized uh people are uh encouraged goaded or produced in such a way that uh socially we do not Uh, think of the world as religiously enchanted anymore we start thinking of it in rationalist terms right the the other big thing that I uh, left out is that of course like the the emergence of science as a disciplinary field and uh, sort of scientific reason uh, as a thing that uh, you know is behind many intellectual endeavors in Europe uh, in order to you know what what we call the enlightenment as the enlightenment is trying to uh, rid people of superstitions um, it is trying to install in place as, as kind of a replacement, uh, you know, this notion of scientific reason of uh, being able to look at the world uh, and make unsuperstitious or unclouded judgments and assessments of it and then put those kinds of assessments to productive use. Um, And again, this is uh, also sort of like clearly implicated in the development of capitalism, where we're all supposed to kind of develop into rational consumers who are searching out information about what we're buying and how we're buying it and how are we going to produce things and and so on. Um, Mm -hmm. So you think of yourself as a laborer? Yes. Right. Like, why why are your uh, festivals and holidays getting in the
0: way of going to the factory? Mm -hmm. Things like that. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So uh, the... That's like a a big arc of history that is uh, assumed here, right? That this is a thing Mm -hmm. that happened that uh, the the West, again, because there are some assumptions built into that as well. The West becomes disenchanted uh, with the rise of science and the rise of capitalism. Um, And what ends up happening is that it turns out people don't like living uh, disenchanted lives, there is some sort of like uh, uh, yearning for uh, re-enchantment, right? Something that uh, can get us outside of what uh, ends up being called here. And I can't remember exactly who he's quoting on this point. It might be Weber himself. The iron the iron cage of modernity, um, where everything in the world can be rationalized. Uh, so where is the space for the thing outside of rationalization, right? Or uh, some sort of maybe like cognitive tendency toward that. Where does fantasy go? Um, and for, uh, uh, Sailor, um, what happens is that we get the emergence of, at the turn of the century of kind of, uh, genre literature, science fiction, fantasy, speculative literature broadly, uh, that for Sailor is a means of re-enchanting the world, uh, through various strategies, chief among them, the development of a concept that Sailor calls animistic reason, um, which is a sort of new form of reason, uh, allegedly new, uh, that allows people to indulge in fantasy without forsaking uh the tenets of rationalism. Uh, you know, scientific uh rationalism as uh trying to like again pierce through uh pierce through uh superstition or or deception and things like that. Um what do I do then with kind of like these fantasies where I'm going to imagine that Sherlock Holmes is a real guy. Um, so there's that. And then there's also what I already gestured to the the development of the public sphere of the imagination through like fan letter sections in uh, science fiction magazines and things of that nature. Um, and so that that's, you know, broad strokes, like that's what this argument is, is that uh, there is a move in the emergence of genre literature at the turn of the century from the uh, 19th to the 20th uh, that allows people to reenchant their lives. Um, by ironically indulging, right? Uh, The other kind of key term for sailor here is the ironic imagination. So um, uh, sort of knowingly uh, indulging in the pretense of a fantasy world uh, in order to kind of re-enchant their, their existence by having a kind of compensatory space for, you know, their normal everyday life. Um, And so Mm -hmm. the, the three, uh, key authors for sailor in this book uh, in order are uh, Arthur Conan Doyle uh, and the, you know, the creator of Sherlock Holmes,
0: sir, Arthur Conan Doyle.
1: Uh, I acknowledge no King, but Christ Cameron. <laughs> and I will uh, acknowledge no martial, uh class. I do not doff my hat to thee for we are all equal under God. Oh, um, do, you
0: th- do you, do you, do th- you, uh, what, what do you, what does the guy do? He, th- uh, Flicks his thumb. What's it for? I, bite, I bite
1: my thumb at thee. Uh, do you you bite your thumb at him? Yeah. <laughs> yes, I bite my thumb at Arthur Co- Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Um, you, you're supposed to do a little aside, Michael. You're supposed to go, am I supposed to be biting my thumb at Sir Arthur Conan like, Doyle? Should I, should I be biting my thumb at Sir Arthur Conan Doyle? Yeah, what's do that, it. What's that do going, it, Michael. What's that going to do, do with the listener base? Are they going to be really upset with me for insulting him? Do they really love Sherlock? Yeah, um, do it. Anyhow. Do it.
0: Bite your thumb. (laughs) Do it. That's Uh, the best part of all Shakespeare. My guy's like, I don't know, man. Should I be by my thumb? His buddy's like, do it. Do it. Bite your thumb.
1: (laughs) John Leguizamo can't do shit about it. Do it. Uh, So uh, uh, Doyle is like author number one. Uh, Mm -hmm. Author number two, H.P. Lovecraft. Um, Yep. And author number three, uh, J.R.R. Tolkien. Mm Mm-hmm. So uh, those are kind of the authors that are both uh, exemplary not only of like this kind of like prehistory of the virtual world uh, for Sailor, uh, but also their thinking on these matters is going to form kind of the basis of Sailor's own excavation of uh, the development of this tendency, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So... uh well so so one additional thing here right just just
0: to because uh, that's a big bunch of concepts that we're running through here, right mm-hmm. so we can linearize we can linearize them woof a little bit uh right by just you know one simplification because I think that that sailor gets caught up in this language like animistic reason right yep. that really that's like a big it's a highfalutin term uh-huh. we might say um but re- you know what sailor's trying to get at? I think, in in a very basic level, is that there is a uh, shift in the imagination at the end of the 19th century and beginning of the 20th century in, you know, as you've been, quote unquote, the West, right? Which really just means Europe in the United States, Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, that, uh, and uh, everywhere else on the planet in this book is bracketed off, Mm -hmm. right? So like, Sailor doesn't make any claims about what's going on there is not particularly interested in digging into, say, colonial representation here. So, for example, right, just reading this book, big gap, big issue going on here in a broad sense. I, You know, I'm a little bit of a science fiction scholar. Uh, John Ryder has a whole book about how science fiction develops out of the colonial imagination. Mm-hmm. That, that within, quote-unquote, the West... Uh, we can't really understand what's going on with science fiction and the kind of fantastical imaginary that develops in the imperial period without understanding how uh, imperialism itself functions. Mm-hmm. That there, that there's something going on with the imperial core imagining the conditions in India and then making decisions there that has a lot to do with the way that we imagine things in science fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Uh, you know, I, I would say if there's a you know a big broad criticism of this initial approach that that you know it's the uh, the choice of how you bracket determines what kinds of arguments you can make. You mm-hmm. know, what you decide to speak to d- determines what you say. <laughs> and uh, Sailor's choice to like really hone in on basically, you know, I, I, I just said Europe, but it's really the UK and the US. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, to be very specific. It uh, just means that some things get shaved off and unspoken to, and I think it'd be very inter- interesting to read someone reading the John Ryder book in relationship to this book to check out. But that—that's beside the point. Uh, you know, what I'm trying to say is that that when you kind of linearize what's going on here, uh, you know, uh, based on what you just said a minute ago, right? The basic idea of the book is that it is you know uh, asking this question: How does people? How do people change the way that they imagine things? at the end of the 19th century, um, how is rationality uh, brought into conversation with fancy-free imagination? Like, how can those two things be happening at the same time?
1: Yes. So, uh, one of the other things that sailor gets at, and this is, uh, you know, you, you've made kind of your critique here. This is where my critique is going to end up landing, um, Mm -hmm. is in this kind of history of the imagination, uh, in kind of, uh, well, (laughs) the European imagination, like how, Mm -hmm. how have, uh, uh, Specifically, of course, for for me as well as sailor, right? How has kind of like a a British thinking on the imagination, uh, particularly by its poets and uh, its educators, um, presented the imagination as a thing that, uh, frankly, could be a little dangerous. Uh, and needed to be sort of disciplined, uh, a, a huge kind of, I, if you've listened to our episode on, um, Roncier's The Ignorant Schoolmaster, um, I get into this a little bit, uh, where there is a real sense that, like, the imagination of the individual must be disciplined, uh, in order mm-hmm. to, uh, create a sort of functioning member of society, because the, the, the imagination without discipline, uh, is going to just, uh, result in, in social disorder and chaos, So uh, there's kind of a a sort of skepticism or a a wariness about the use of the individual imagination that Sailor sees as... uh, not exactly disappearing uh, in this age, but rather there is a a mode of public discourse or or modes of engagement that are emerging that are about reconciling one's imagination with uh you know for instance the tenets of uh, modern rationality or something like, like that. that. Yeah. Um And so this uh, ability, right, this ability to have kind of my my understanding of myself as, let's say, a a late 19th century Victorian gentleman Mm -hmm. uh, who uh, knows very well that uh, all the old superstitions of the past are located safely in the past and that we have uh, created a, a new scientific order. Uh, that is uh, going to uh, work in harmony with various other types of cultural traditions uh, to see us forward into the the bright, beautiful future. Um, How can I, on the one hand, think that, and on the other hand, spend my time uh, writing letters to magazines where I pretend that Sherlock Holmes is a real person? Mm-hmm. Or I pretend much later to be Gimli. Yes. <laughs> I, I,
0: W.H. Auden <laughs> pretended to be Gimli. That he was RP'd as Gimli at one point. That is
1: so incredible to me. That it's like the high point of this book for me is learning that <laughs> W.H. Auden, who, if you don't know, was um, a, a poet um, and a very well-respected poet. Uh, uh, yes. <laughs> was like in his spare time role-playing Gimli in like a, a you know, Middle Earth letter writing society. <laughs> And pissing off a teenager about it. Yes. Yeah, the guy, the the teenager who founded the society got (laughs) irritated at WH Auden for showing up and like RPing Gimli too hard.
0: (laughs) Yes. This teenager, because we find it out through like a, like a, what do you call it? Um, Not a new, I guess it's like a newsletter. Yeah. You know, like the bulletin. Yes. yes, uh, yes, Like a bulletin uh, update. And the kid is like, I hate that WH Auden is showing up all the time. RPing is Gimli. It's annoying. I don't want people to call me Frodo. Don't call him Gimli. Don't call anyone by their RP names. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's you know the greatest bulletin ever made, uh, locked after
1: fifteen thousand response letters. <laughs> don't let WH Odden turn this into an RP server. <laughs> <laughs> it's very good, but yeah,
0: absolutely right. There's this 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 kind of the language that um, that sailor uses here. And I'm sympathetic to this usage of this word or this concept, while also thinking that you should not do it. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I can rationalize it and understand why it happened. But Sailor call, calls this this kind of double articulation. I would use the Deleuze and Guattari. I would say it's double articulations, two things happening at one time that are non-contradictory. Mm-hmm. That's their word for it. But he calls it double consciousness, mm-hmm. which, if you're f- familiar with uh, W. B. Du Bois, right? Uh, you know, very famous. Um, uh, you know, black critic of uh, everything, <laughs> you know, his, historian, sociologist, mm-hmm. uh, you know, brilliant thinker um, in the early 20th century. Uh, uh, you know, he uh, uh, the concept of double consciousness uh, from Du Bois uh, and it famously is used to explain the conditions of being. Uh, black in america mm-hmm. right um, it you know to live in two worlds at one time the other phrase where it's the veil or the concept of the veil of recognizing that one lives in multiple social conditions at one time mm-hmm. um, you know a thousand other people have come to this since then in, in different language but du bois is really really um uh, giving us critical language for that at a very pivotal point in u.s history um what sailor points out in footnote i don't know if you read the footnote but actually went to the end of the book, read the footnote or the end note, I guess. Mm -hmm. And Sailor points out that that what's actually happening historically seems to be that Du Bois is using the the idea of double consciousness at the time uh, in order to explain this particular kind of racial uh, phenomena. Uh, But the word double consciousness at that time was like in circulation. People were using it to explain many things. It's just Mm -hmm. kind of now at this point, we only have one association with that term, you know, coming from a very particular trajectory. Mm -hmm. So I can rationally, you know, here's a moment in which uh, rationality and uh, reality exist at the same time and yet uh, are kind of uh, uh, overlapping. I totally rationally buy that explanation. However, when you read this whole book and it's talking about double consciousness of people um, and their relationship between multiple kinds of different worlds and the uh, the the racial meaning of that is specifically kind of bracketed out. And then race really does not show up in a substantive or um, uh, important way other than, you know, when uh, the racial views of particular authors are showing up. I mean, Lovecraft gets his own chapter. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it creates a very weird reading experience. So I personally probably would not have done that. And I would advise people if you end up engaging with this work to maybe come up with some different language or some additional language for it. Um, but that's all to say. Double consciousness shows up here to to talk about this exact same thing that you're talking about, right? That that these people could be engaging with these big uh fantastical worlds while also in their day-to-day life being uh hyper rationalist, secular, you know, upstanding members of uh you know, middle or upper class British society, for example. Um, and we get some really great examples of that, like Auden playing <laughs> is Gimli. Um the I was gonna say something else about that but but now I've forgotten, so uh, I guess we can move on <laughs> mm-hmm. uh
1: yeah, I mean, so that's you know we we talked really about the big picture of the book, and as I said, the first mm-hmm. chapter is kind of uh this history of the imagination and what that is, like sort of uh what is it about that that changes that gives rise to this situation where we can have uh basically uh you know. Uh, recreational bullshit um, mm-hmm. that is that is understood as such by the people who are engaging in it. Oh, I, I do know what I wanted to say. Thank you. Okay. Uh, you saying that that uh,
0: <laughs> reminded me here, right? So we've talked a little bit about virtual worlds and you kind of gave a good example of it. We've had several examples. But so the way that Sailor defines that or, you know, the notion of virtual world, it's on page six, quote, Define here as acknowledged imaginary spaces that are communally inhabited for prolonged periods of time by rational individuals mm-hmm. so um it, it, that also provides the, like as if which we can talk about in just a minute but it's the notion that these ver- the the it's not just that people are engaged in like fan- fantastical thinking or whatever right mm-hmm. uh you know they're not just like sitting at the at the factory and like imagining Candyland or whatever they want to do <laughs> right they are um they, they rationally approach something like the world of Sherlock Holmes or uh, Middle Earth, mm-hmm. and they want to think of it like you would rationally engage with the world we live in, right? So mm-hmm. they care about the maps and the geography and if they are, quote, unquote, true or not. Yeah. Uh, you know, say- Sailor is trying to get to a point where we can say, like, uh, he's trying to give us an intellectual genealogy of, like, what happens when we have arguments about canon in Skyrim?
1: Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Like, what is happening there? What are the conditions and necessary to produce Neil deGrasse Tyson? Y-
0: basically, mm-hmm. right? Yes, where Neil deGrasse Tyson could be like, Well, space doesn't work that way, and so Interstellar is stupid. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's like, all right, man, I don't know. That's my Neil deGrasse Tyson, by the way. Just like a <laughs> like an overly formal voice. Well, uh, the sun is hot and it hurts to look at. <laughs> so we would never be able to take uh, you know, sunshine could never happen. Mm-hmm. That guy looking at the sun. He would make his eyeballs explode. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> no good. Uh uh, just just uh overly formal, uh kind of like weirdly mistaken about the point of the thing. But no, you're hundred percent right. Yeah, that 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 we could look at a fictional thing entirely and then apply pure rationalist principles to them, and then like argue about whether or not imaginary things are more true than other imaginary things. Mm-hmm. Now, one might say, Michael, mm-hmm that uh, this is not new at the end of the 19th century no um here's and uh, you and i've talked a little bit about this and, and maybe you wanted to talk about it a little bit but i i think a thing that that i would like to add to this that makes this book make a lot more sense to me um for its claims to uniqueness about the end of the 19th century is that these are uh corporatizable yes worlds mm-hmm. uh, and, you know because like doyle is not uh, making sherlock holmes up to be like a corporate property even though it's very successful now as a corporate property despite being in public domain lord of the rings is not being made as a corporate property uh the H.P. lovecraft stuff is not being made as a corporate property but there's something going on here about all of these being deeply commercial mm-hmm. worlds mm-hmm. like they are popular and commercially popular like this is not like you know, uh, 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 Gondol and Angria, right? Mm-hmm. From even though that shows up a little bit in this book, th- they're not the same thing. Well, the, as mm-hmm. I was going to say, the,
1: the the really big uh, sort of um, contrasts we can point at here are some of the ones that uh, Sailor does point at. So, uh, Emile Zola, uh, Thomas mm-hmm. Hardy. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Anthony Trollope, uh, William Faulkner. These are all authors who also have like their own imagined uh, kind of spaces, right? Zola's uh, France or um, mm-hmm. Anthony Trollope has like, you know, like I think the majority of Anthony Trollope's novels all take place in like the same fictional county in the UK. Uh, Faulkner, mm-hmm. of course, has a uh, Yoknapatawpha County. Uh, so this idea of sort of like an ongoing, uh, like a, a, a writer's sort of ongoing fictional space um, a specific writer's ongoing fictional space, uh, it's not new. Uh, and Sailor asks the question, you know, why aren't we <laughs> why aren't we all imagining ourselves in Yakna County? Uh, why would we rather go to Middle Earth? And his response is that uh, you know, Zola and Faulkner are not re-enchanting the world. That's like that's not a thing that they're doing. Whatever reenchanting might mean, uh, they're not doing it. Uh, but you know, Doyle and Tolkien and Lovecraft are. Uh, and it's I think the the actual difference uh is exactly what you're saying is that there is something corporatizable about the fantastical in uh these other authors that is not exactly corporatizable in Faulkner. <laughs> Yeah, they they are mass media phenomena Mm -hmm.
0: that really heavily depend their their continued existence depends on commercial success. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, maybe not the Lord of the Rings, although I think uh, the commercial success is what keeps it in the imagination after that kind of nineteen seventies boom. You know, it consistently becomes an important thing, but Arthur Conan Doyle's world only exists because Arthur Conan Doyle or Sherlock Holmes's world uh, because Arthur Conan Doyle wants to keep selling short stories, Mm -hmm. right? Like to the strand or whatever. Uh, uh, And similar thing with Lovecraft, right? He's like pounding these stories out, uh, not because he's just like, loves the thrill of the word right like uh it's because he's selling things this is his primary form of income Mm -hmm. um you know i don't think philip k dick loved writing novels necessarily (laughs) i think he needed to do so there's something going on here right that that these are uh, massified worlds that allow people to kind of live in them and they have such a proliferation of documents about them because they kind of exist, uh, uh, you know, floating on top of an economic set of principles, mm-hmm. um, and so that's something that, that Sailor doesn't really talk about very much in the book. But but I, I just kind of inserted that into my reading of the book, and I think it made it make a little bit more sense to me that there's there's something here about massification, corporatizability, the and uh, you know for lack of a better term content mm-hmm. you know there's always a proliferation of rationalizable content there's always more kind of empirical data to come in and to try to figure out like where the hell this took place in the timeline and lord of the rings or like what random asshole in europe is sherlock holmes gonna meet <laughs> uh, you know uh and are they related to some other guy right like the, these things seem to be important, uh, definitely with Lovecraft, right? Like, how does this fit into the universe? Is like mm-hmm. half of the 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 thrill of you know someone being introduced to Lovecraft. We've we've uttered the phrase uh, or the name Lovecraft many times and not talked about uh, you know his uh, deep uh, weird and abiding racism. We will get there, I promise you, because it's kind of what all chapters about. Mm-hmm. And I have some pretty distinct disagreements with the way that that Sailor reads uh, Lovecraft there, same. But, yeah, it's pretty interesting, but that's kind of what's going on. I, I know you were trying to put a pin in this first chapter a minute ago, and I just kept talking, but that's the basic idea here, right, is trying to lay out the kind of key terms of the book, and, and you gave us some of those, uh, or I think you gave us all of those, Michael, and trying to figure out, like, what's going on in in a, in a time period, you know, the onset of modernity, not the onset, I guess, industrial modernity, mm-hmm. as it's, like, churning along at the end of the 19th century, we get two main Things that are happening that we got to account for. One is the increased secularization and rationalization of all parts of life. You know, capitalism is consuming everything and turning it into, um, uh, you know, profits and losses. Mm -hmm. That's happening. On the other hand, we are inventing a, maybe not wholly new, but certainly a new iteration of how we engage with fantastical worlds Mm -hmm. in a very particular part of the world. And that's what the whole rest of the book's about. Mm Mm-hmm
1: yeah i so you know it's really just a continuation of what i was saying as i was transitioning before uh Mm. that we have this market like that this is how the next chapter begins right we have a market emergence of these kind of collaborative fictional worlds and of course being uh the pre-modernist right in my literary leanings this is where i point out uh even further that this is not so much it it is truly a market emergence. This is not a new thing, mm-hmm. even before Trollope and Faulkner. Um, the the King Arthur uh mythology, right, and the various mm, yeah. versions of that are an incredibly easy go-to to point out how like collaborative fictional worlds coexisted or like existed uh in some form uh long before they were captured by the capitalist market. So um, there's there's kind of that right we have this movement of uh, a thing that people have done kind of uh vernacularly or folklorically uh, into the the realm of uh, market commodities. Um, this is also sort of uh, folded in for sailor along with uh he he sort of studies like I think the 18th century onward is maybe kind of his uh, time period. So he also talks a lot in this first chapter about the rise of fictionalism, uh, which is a th- basically uh in in the academy at least right when when we're talking about fictionalism, we are talking about this idea that is very popular in uh sort of studies of, for instance, the novel as an emerging, uh, format, uh, as well as in the 18th century, um, the idea that fiction existed, right? Like before the novel, uh, kind of starts firing on all cylinders and we've got like, you know, a mass market reading public, the word fiction, uh, referred to like a deceit, right. Or, or something false or fake. Like it would not be used to refer to, uh, like uh, a, a fun little story that you're telling, like a fable or something. Um, so fictionalism is uh, the term that literary critics and historians give to uh, the ways in which, like readers and writers in the 18th century were trying to figure out uh, how do you write stories about uh, things that didn't happen, about people who don't exist? Uh, and uh, like, how do you do this kind of safely? Um, because there's a lot of push and pull, I guess, in what we would call again, the public sphere over this, uh, Daniel Defoe, for example, the guy who writes, uh, Robinson Crusoe, um, when he publishes that book, which is, uh, you know, at various points, uh, by various people referred to as the first, uh, or one of the first novels, uh, in English, uh, Uh, Defoe says that that is true, that Robinson Crusoe is a real person, uh, that he knows him and that he might have changed the name. uh, But all of the stuff that is in this book is stuff that really happened. Uh, And there's a lot of uh, kerfluffle uh, at the time about this as people sort of start digging into it and trying to figure out, well, if this guy's real, where is he? Who is he? So on and so forth. Um,
0: (laughs) If he's real, show me Robinson Crusoe.
1: Yeah. I mean really, right? Uh because the thing to keep in <laughs> mind gangs and top
0: hats. <laughs> Where's Robinson Gro I wanna meet him? Well, he built a he built that cabin. <laughs>
1: You bought those pirates. (gasps) But but really, right? Think about this. Uh, Print is uh, becoming cheaper and more uh, prolific than ever before, and uh, the things that people are getting through the print is also like the invention of a news ecosystem, right? It's not Mm -hmm. a coincidence that the word novel also means new because people were getting things that were news uh, like through the same medium, which was like all of this increased access to print
0: i love what a just a beautiful historical moment where it's like why is it called news well it was new yep it was just new stuff that happened people, and it was on a piece of paper mm-hmm. wow <laughs> uh yeah uh very funny right so i when i was in grad school i took two classes that were kind of cross-listed with english uh one on uh i don't know like digital something mm-hmm. who knows Uh, and, and the other one was on like the 18th century (laughs) and the invention of the novel. I don't know why I took that course (laughs) coverage, (laughs) but, but yeah, so weirdly enough, I, I do know, I do know about this, Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, so the real phenomenon for sure. And yeah, this is all kind of, um, uh, emergent
1: out of that, right? Mm -hmm. Is what you would say? Yes. Uh, so, uh, for sailor, the kind of primary thing, uh, is that fictionalism emerges and it allows people to start uh, thinking about stories as, and this is this is me like really glossing him because these are not things that he surfaces as much. This is what fictionalism does in kind of the arguments about the novel. It allows uh, stories to be non-referential. Um, uh, by which I mean, Uh, Prior to kind of this assume, if you want to hear more about this, uh, someone you should read is Catherine Gallagher, because she's written lots of really smart stuff about this. She actually has a book about um, the rise of uh, alternate histories, right? Like counterfactual stories, like counterfactual histories, um, Hmm. which she sort of argues are like uh, they 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 uh, they explode primarily because they are useful for uh, military strategists. Uh so there's an interesting mm-hmm, uh yeah. consonance there with uh, uh the Krogan book, right? Uh that you could take this historical battle and be like, well, what if it happened differently? Um so anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah, telling it like it wasn't the
0: counterfactual imagination in history and fiction. Mm-hmm.
1: So uh, 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 yeah. Yeah. Just bracketing that aside for for a minute, though. Uh okay. what uh is useful then uh for Sailor. Uh, Is that we suddenly have kind of an emergence of an idea of fiction of things that don't refer to real people, right? Again, prior to kind of this moment, there was any time like a novel was published or like, uh, not any time, right? But like most of the time, if things were published, people would start reading it as like, who is this about? Like, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, is, is this basically like coded, uh, social satire or something like that? Like, is there a specific person who the author is trying to drag over the coals here? And, um, uh, uh, Henry Fielding uh, writes uh, Tom Jones, a novel that it's 20 years after Robinson Crusoe, and as a very sort of distinguishing move from what Defoe does, uh, he says that no one in here is real, right? The, the, the specific phrase that he uses is that this is not about an individual, uh, but a species, right? Literally inventing mm. a type of guy. Right. This is not about one specific person. This is about a type of personality uh, that is sort of broadly applicable to society and therefore, right, is non-specifically referential. So there's all this Hmm. stuff going on about uh, like the emergence of fiction and how that works. uh, And it allows for Sailor um, the ability to take a fictional story and engage with it as if it were real. Um, and so it becomes a, a way of indulging in the imagination, right, or sort of the imaginary capacity that doesn't lead you into this, like, uh, bizarre tangle of trying to figure out who is this book trying to uh, dunk on, right? Uh, like, is that who which is the specific aristocrat that this author has a problem with? And they're trying to, like, do a satire of and that sort of thing.
0: Who are they roasting?
1: Yes, Um and he talks here, then Sailor does about, uh, well, so the, the way that he ends up phrasing it, and this is a phrase that recurs throughout the book, um, is that, uh, well it it's the ironic imagination right the ability to imagine something ironically to to i'm going to imagine this and sort of respond to it as if it were real but it's ironic because i know you know fundamentally i'm I, it's not real right i'm doing kind of uh the the primary meaning of irony the the opposite right um So the ironic imagination, this is on page 30, uh, allows, quote, emotional immersion in and rational reflection on imaginary worlds yielding a form of modern enchantment that delights without deluding. So it doesn't uh, get you caught up. It it delights you. You can get sort of the benefit of engaging with this uh, fictional world, but it's not going to delude you by leading you down this rabbit hole of trying to like find the one-to-one correspondence or like uh, make you think that everything I read here has to be taken as real. And I have to like apply those lessons uh, from like in my own life. Right. Um, I'm not going to get uh, sort of snapped up by the fiction itself. Mm -hmm. What I want to say about this, this phrase that uh, shows up again and again in this book, uh, delight without diluting, that is humanism. Uh, not just sort of like philosophical humanism as we understand it today, that is humanism uh, as an educational practice in Europe uh, in the eighteenth century, the seventeenth century, the sixteenth century. Uh, it is formulated primarily in uh, the term uh, it's the, the the function of poetry is to both delight and instruct. So this comes from uh Horace, right? The um uh Roman uh uh poet Horace, who has a, a very famous poem, The Ars Poetica, that exerts a, a huge gravitational pull on the ways that uh Europe thinks about like poetic production and fiction uh going forward. But uh I think it's interesting here that we see kind of the shift from uh, the humanist delight and instruct, right? We we have a poem that is supposed to make you uh, happy, right? It delights you because it shows you something cool and wild and something that's not really in your normal run of existence. Or it's going to be well put together, uh, you know, it's got good language, uh, got good mouthfeel or whatever. Um, But it also instructs, it imparts a moral lesson, right? That is uh, a sort of uh, pre-modern humanist view of this. Uh, And now we suddenly with Sailor, get delight without diluting. So notice how the mandate has changed. It's not that Mm -hmm. uh, we are being delighted and instructed. It's that we can be delighted, but also not diluted. So the issue is not that the the fiction needs to teach us something. It just has to uh, not lead us astray.
0: Yeah, Uh, Yeah. uh, you know, a a weird thing happens here in the book, which I think, like, again, it's a thing I can, like, understand rationally, but I similarly have a, a, you know, a feeling like you do here, right, where, like, it's very unclear to me what the dividing lines are historically. Mm-hmm. You know, like, why is this not just the previous thing? And I, the way that Sailor manages that, which is, like, acceptable, I guess, although I don't quite understand it, um, is, is basically by saying, well, starting in, like, 1850, mm-hmm. you know, 1860, 1870, somewhere in there, right? Right before this time period, there are several movements that are aggressively – Um, pushing against the imagination. Mm -hmm. And it's only kind of out of that that this kind of emerges. And, you know, Saylor does say several times that it's kind of a throwback to and specifically calling out Hume and Kant, right? The Mm -hmm. idea that that one cannot understand rational positions or or rationalization without also understanding the kind of affective register that it's in. You know, the additional thing, I never thought I'd say these words, but I would love to hear a little bit more about Kant here. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. (laughs) If only because Kant, you know, the critique of judgment does give a lot of these ideas here, right? I mean, you know, specifically says that judgment, uh, you know, legislates among the faculties, meaning that judgment is the thing that allows you to kind of make distinctions about what is real or not, uh, what is rational and irrational, what is like an authentic feeling versus a produced feeling or like, um, uh, you know, an artificial one, things like that. Mm Mm-hmm. There's a lot of other weird stuff that's associated with that, too, that we don't have to get into. But, you know, I I do think that that maybe digging a little bit deeper into what are the precedents of this at the kind of birth of the Enlightenment, quote-unquote, mm-hmm. uh, would have done a lot to kind of also... Because I ended up in the same spot as you of being like, well, I, you know, I get, I buy this argument that these things are emerging, but for me, you know, I, I can't get away from it. To me, it just looks like economics. To me, it just looks like the emergence of a new mass, a mass media form in an economic condition that then produces like a, a change in the middle class mm-hmm. um, and their reading habits, right? I, I There's no way for me to look at this as a straight-up historical and i can only look at this as like a cultural studies person yeah,
1: absolutely um
0: you know even though i'm not really a cultural studies person at the end of the day but you know i cultural studies just opens up this it, cultural studies allows me to make the same move that you're doing here right which is like actually longitudinal move and what changes here is a very specific kind of commodity property mm-hmm. um and a way that people invest themselves in commodities <laughs> yes i am am 100 percent with you um I would have loved a little bit more of a long, long durée here, but maybe this is a good place to talk about it. I think it's just a function of being a historian, mm-hmm. uh, meaning that right historians always have to create uh, beginnings and endings for a story. If not, you're going to end up writing like massive um, volumes that like are, are are sprawling and spiraling. And I think there's a big move, and this is just based on the you know the work in straight up history that I read. Um, there's a move to narrativize things and make things kind of tell as a story. And, uh, I, I, I think some of these edges get filed off in order to make that happen. Cause mm-hmm. I think it's a very readable book. Absolutely. Um, and so, you know, I think, but I think you're right. I think at the end of the day, I, I think that this book is telling an incomplete story, mm-hmm. uh, about where all of this emerges. Um,
1: from and how unique these things really are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it it turns out like I, uh, the thing that feels like coming for me, Michael Lutz, is when you uh mm-hmm. start simplifying what is apparently my thing, which is the history of how people have imagined stuff. Mm -hmm. Apparently, like I I had not really thought about uh, my own work in these terms quite as uh, explicitly until I read this book where I was just like, well, actually, here's how here's how humanism squared this circle. Right. Um, Here's how this worked in the theater. Uh, Here's how this uh, citation of Coleridge is incorrect. Uh, That sort of thing. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, I, I, I think the, you know, the upshot of this, right, is that what Saylor calls the ironic imagination is both. Uh, longer term Mm -hmm. right like it just it it emerges with the enlightenment not as a product of the enlightenment Mm -hmm. i I think is or or maybe the ironic imagination is one of the engines that allows the the enlightenment to kind of get started Mm -hmm. i think that's that's one thing going on here and also that those um previous modes are maybe ways of of negotiating this Mm um you know i i think that if you are if you come from a cultural position that's like oh, so tolkien is the good example of this right like Tol- tolkien religious and conservative mm-hmm. broadly and and that's all over those books right you know maybe not specifically or allegorically or whatever but the broad framework is is uh, well represented within the lord of the rings I don't think it would be difficult to like if if one is steeped in religious iconography and religious storytelling and uh uh the kind of uh big background texts of Christianity, it's not difficult to start creating an imaginary world with a bunch of like interesting weird rules because that's kind of what you grew up in mm-hmm. uh is an interesting uh, you know uh, cultural position with a lot of weird rules mm-hmm. um and so I, I think these are uh, continuous, you know, rather than um, a breakage of any kind of thing. Um, thing I wanted to ask you about, mm-hmm. uh, you know, because this is uh, Game Studies Study buddies. We care about game studies here. Do you know that Aleister Crowley was involved uh, with Sephiroth? <laughs> hey, it's the middle of the episode. We're here to make a pitch for Patreon patreon.com slash range touch uh if you go over there you can give us money and we really enjoy that uh but you can also do all kinds of other stuff you can get access to uh, our notes for this episode if you want to check that out uh it's three dollars a month
1: there is uh, so much information in it. my notes that i did not even say on this uh fairly lengthy recording
0: yeah the, michael has seven s- uh single space pages of notes <laughs> so a lot of content there i have way less um But, uh, but yeah, so we got that. That's $3 a month. If you want to go in there and you want to check those out and see what else we've got, you know, if you, if you're thinking about, oh, I don't know, comping, uh, you know, taking some comprehensive exams in the future on any of the books here, real cheap way to get some pretty comprehensive notes is all Mm -hmm. I'm saying. Uh, But we got all kinds of other stuff over there. Uh, You can go to rangetouch.com in order to check out our other shows, like Homestuck Made This World, uh, where we read through the webcomic Homestuck and we are trying to figure out what's going on there. Uh, I talk about cultural studies a lot in this uh, episode, and you're kind of getting to hear us do some cultural studies in real time on that show. Uh, So if you're interested in hearing what that sounds like and checking it out, that's that's, uh, what we're up to. Over there, uh, we got Just King Things, where we're reading through the works of Stephen King in publication order, and we do a lot of kind of contextualization. What was going on in the 70s? What was going on in the 80s? What's Stephen King doing? How is he taking the political world that he lives in? All that kind of stuff, and then represented it in fiction. So, uh, weirdly enough, there's a lot of overlap between the book that we're talking about, uh, the Sailor book, and the other things that we do, and we got some other shows as well. Rangetouch.com will tell you all about that. Go to youtube.com slash rangetouch to see the videos that we make um and if you're listening to this on any kind of platform that allows you to rate it particularly apple podcasts go ahead and give us five stars if you give us a five star rating uh i will read a review on this show i'm gonna do it right now so yeah if you leave a five star review i will read it on the show here in the ad break this is a five star review from osgood b from earlier this year Makes me smarter with minimum effort on my part. <laughs> I appreciate how this podcast is much cheaper than graduate school. And also, I don't have to do any of the actual reading. Thanks, guys. You know what, Osgoodby? You're welcome. And uh, if you're listening to this, if you want wanting to read a review of yours on the thing, we have some truly great reviews on there that are worth checking out. Uh, it's it's a good uh, content stream <laughs> on all on its own. But, uh, yeah, leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. If you're checking us out on Spotify or something like that, hit that thumbs up button. I don't know. There's like a million different ways to rate stuff. Just give us the best one mm-hmm. you can, please. It helps us out. We don't spend any money on advertising or anything like that. Um, you can also go to uh, rangetouch.com to buy shirts. We, we made some uh, Game Studies Study Study Buddies-specific shirts. Michael, are you rocking that Ron shirt? Did you purchase one? Yes, I have one. You're going to wear it to uh, your family's holiday
1: experience? Absolutely. Great. Let us us know on the next episode about how that works out. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And please, please uh, join our public sphere of the imagination here on Game Studies Study Buddies.
0: Goodbye. Or actually, no, it's just back to the episode. It's not goodbye.
1: (laughs) Back to the episode.
0: Do you know that Aleister Crowley was involved uh, with Sephiroth?
1: <laughs> I saw your note there. I wanted to see more about that. Mm-hmm.
0: Oh, that's it. That's oh, it's just a little. Yes. It's like a parenthetical here where we learn that Aleister Crowley and Sephiroth were like BFFs. Mm-hmm.
1: Wait, hold on. What yeah, page I, is that on? It's on page forty-three. Page forty-three.
0: Occultists themselves could hold their beliefs Ironically, oh, yeah, as yeah, was yeah. often the case With Aleister Crowley. In one of his works he stated Quote, in this book it is spoken Of the Sephiroth and the paths Of spirits and conjurations, of gods, spheres Planes, and many other things, mm-hmm. which may or may not Exist. It is immaterial <laughs> whether They
1: exist or not <laughs> So, Shut up and don't send me letters about it uh, uh, A guy Who has only played video Games, uh, seeing the <laughs> paths Of the Sephiroth for the first time Wow, getting a lot mm-hmm. of Final Fantasy VII vibes from this
0: (laughs) i am (laughs) i was but yeah you know that that, what's interesting about that even though that sailor doesn't flag it is that's happening in the 20s right Mm -hmm. and it clearly is crowley being like do not send me letters yes do not do not bother me about whether these things are real or not i know you did that with sherlock holmes and i don't want to hear about it (laughs) Um, another thing, because we're kind of uh, we, I don't think we flagged. I mean, we flagged the transition, but we're kind of in the middle of chapter one here. Mm-hmm. Um, another thing that that is really important here and, and kind of speaks to that corporatization that I, that we were talking about earlier is that uh, Sailor is citing Foucault on the decline of the author function, which I think is a little bit of a weird reading of that mm-hmm. that Foucault piece, but it's it's fine, whatever because uh, it kind of is about that um but what was really helpful here is that sailor notes that there is a rise in the what, what i think it's called I, I didn't put quotation marks around this but i think is the this is the exact phrase of the quote autonomous fictional world mm-hmm. and that's really key here right yes. that like the fictional world itself kind of becomes like a commodity within marxism right the, with the commodity fetish as a concept mm-hmm. of It is a, it becomes its own unit Mm -hmm. that in existing erases its own historical connections. Right.
1: It puts you in a position where uh, Sherlock Holmes fans can say things like uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle is wrong about Sherlock Holmes. (laughs) Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And that's like
0: totally... Uh, like no one is. It's not like one person says that and everyone else is like, I don't know about this guy. It's like everyone kind of agrees for that, right? Mm-hmm. There, <laughs> there's a great story later in the book where he's talking about uh, Doyle's son attending a meeting of the Baker Street Irregulars, mm-hmm. who's like it's like a fan group, and and they're all like delivering papers and lectures or whatever. It's like a little conference. Uh, About Sherlock Holmes and his world, and like determining what people's middle names are through like Mm -hmm. process of elimination, all kinds of stuff like that. And uh, somewhere in the middle, uh, Doyle's son's like, they have not mentioned my dad's name at all. Mm-hmm. Like, what is going on? And the person he was with was like, Yeah, like they they think he's the literary executor. They don't give a shit about your dad. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. he's not the thing they're here for. And that bothered uh, the, the lesser Doyle <laughs> to the extent <laughs> that uh, he, like, demanded they cease all actions mm-hmm. and things like that. Mm-hmm. He tried to do, like, a DMCA on them at
1: the <laughs> <big> turn
0: <laughs> of the 20th century. Um, but yeah, so this idea that these virtual worlds, these kind of fictional universes take on their own existence that have, that where no individual creator, you know, uh, controls the thing, Mm -hmm. you know, it doesn't matter what George Lucas says about Star Wars, right? George Lucas can be wrong about Star Wars, especially now, Uh, especially now, but you know, in the, the day that Star Wars came out, Mm Mm-hmm george lucas and i guess that can be true right but that's a weird thing if you think about it Mm -hmm. that one could create something and be wrong about uh the like the facts on the ground of that fictional thing but that's emerging here like uh, that that perspective or that set of opinions or the idea that that's just like a normal thing
1: that that that's what sailor is pointing at the emergence of here Mm -hmm. too is there anything else in this first chapter that you want to touch on People love
0: that Borges story.
1: Yeah, they love they love Tlone Akbar, Orbis Tertius. Mm,
0: it's like, this is like the third time this has showed up in a a book that we've done on this show. Mm-hmm. It's, it's interesting. So if you're tracking that, uh, go ahead and take your uh, uh, Orbis Tertius uh, count. Take yeah. that up by one. Bing, bing. <laughs> uh,
1: chapter two. Uh, chapter two is called Delight Without Delusion, The New Romance, Spectacular Texts, and Public Spheres. Uh, so, uh, there, there's our three kind of key terms here. I've already mentioned the public spheres of the imagination and we'll get to that. The first two things then, uh, the new romance is a kind of, uh, literary genre or almost sort of like literary sub genre that is emerging, uh, at, uh, you know, the, the turn of the century, um, that is, uh, broadly construed, uh, dedicated to taking the old genre of romance, which is understood sort of historically and even within, I think the the, the field today to be kind of distinct from the novel. Um, the romance is uh, a type of prose story usually, but not always prose. It might have uh, poetry in it, like sections of poetry and, and uh, like little dramatic interludes and things like that. Um, but primarily the, the, the defining features of the romance as a genre are like just off the wall stuff like a character starts in a place and goes on a rip-roaring adventure through like multiple real and imagined places like trying to usually right in in pursuit of uh their their one true love right that mm-hmm. like that's mm-hmm. um like someone is trying to get to someone that they love or like you know recover a, a spouse or something like that and in the process, uh, everyone is kind of like circulating in this uh, huge, like effectively heightened arena, like space kind of does and does not matter. Uh, like people will, you know, travel forever, but also get from one side of the continent to the other in a few days. Uh, mm-hmm. Weird magic is going to show up like there's going to be a ghost. People are going to get stuck inside magic caves, uh, so on and so forth. So that's like swamps. Yep. Yep. So that's like old style romance, right? Uh it is uh messy is is the word that I would use to describe it. Um, like that's sort of I think how it appears to kind of a a contemporary reader Uh, something like Shakespeare's The Winter's Tale uh, is based on a prose romance called Pendosto by Robert Green Uh, and if you know anything about Shakespeare and The Winter's Tale uh, the the prose romance is the same thing it's a big messy story that like goes from one side of Europe to the other Uh, someone gets eaten by a bear a baby is lost in the woods Uh, there may or may not be a ghost a woman may or may not get turned into a statue Uh, all this all this sort of stuff uh it's sort of like the most famously like just out there of of Shakespeare's plays in that way because it's just th- there's like no boundary on the world right you get the sense mm-hmm. in romance that everything could just keep like pushing out forever um so the new romance uh emerges kind of post rise of the novel and it is uh primarily being advocated for or written by Uh, People who see themselves as taking kind of the emotional or effective uh, imaginary of the romance and essentially rationalizing it Um, coming up with ways that you can have these kinds of uh, sort of fantastic uh, stories filled with incredible types of incident. Uh, but in ways that do not uh, just seem wildly outside uh, the bounds of probability, uh, reason, or what is, uh, you know, increasingly important in this time, uh, notions of scientific possibility. Uh, so like uh, Jules Verne, for instance, right, is kind of a new, new romance writer um, in, in this mode.
0: Yeah, I mean basically uh Wells mm-hmm. Wells is writing uh, you know the new romances. Um it, it's basically anything that you might think of as like science fiction or like heightened adventure based fantasy that happens between like 1870 and 1910. Mm-hmm. That's going to be the new romance broadly right It's big and weird and doesn't really fit it's kind of proto-genre
1: yes and uh h rider haggard also shows up here mm-hmm. particularly his novel she um which is not exactly science fiction it's more like a, a sort of a adventure fantasy um but you know it's a story mm-hmm. about like a. uh, uh an english adventurer going off to a uh, foreign land and finding out that there's still like there's still magic there right um obviously uh from uh, touching on what you said about like the imperial imagination right Th- there are things happening here um but the other thing then that is really important that uh sailor gets into a lot here is that a lot of these books uh are sort of one kind of demonstrating uh rationality by including things like uh maps right here here is like an extremely accurate map for the location where this story takes place or for the uh like path that the story meanders through um and it's like a fold-out map there there are some great pictures in here of uh of the um uh novel she right that like the first edition that had this like uh very sort of uh realistically done fold-out map so you could see uh where characters went or like where things stood in relation to each other um there's also an extensive discussion of uh, rudyard kipling's short story the nightmare uh which is about like what was what was then it's it's it's, you know a sort of early work of science fiction where kipling kind of imagines a future where everything runs on dirigibles (laughs) Yeah, it's awesome. Um
0: it's it's just some steampunk nonsense. Yeah,
1: right. It's like literally like it is it is the steampunk of steampunk, right? <laughs> like it it's the Victorians inventing steampunk before it has to get reinvented uh, uh later on. Um and it's like the story itself is written uh as it it takes on the form of a story as they would have appeared in a contemporary 19th century literary magazine, um which is to say that there are like ads inset into the sides right Uh, people looking to buy like dirigibles Uh, like they're all fake, but it uh, gives sort of the, the sense of verisimilitude right and it builds out the world. Uh, through kind of like little gestures, right? Here is like, you know, there's one that's quoted. It's like a family is looking to, I think, buy a new dirigible (laughs) um, because I guess their old one uh, doesn't work anymore. They like had another kid or something, or maybe they're trying to hire a a chauffeur. Maybe I think, I don't know. Anyway, it's that type of thing, right? It's um, there's a story that is being told, but then the ads around that story Uh, The the story is uh, ostensibly true for the world, right? And then the ads around that story are kind of like additional anchor points uh, for this fictional world where everyone is uh, uh, flying around in the sky all the time. So these are what... uh, uh, uh sailor calls spectacular texts uh the other things that he talks about are like um uh like conan doyle uh putting on a costume and posing uh in a picture like posing for a picture where he is uh he's essentially cosplaying his own oc right he he cosplays as professor challenger from journey to the center of the earth and then when journey to the center of the earth is published or no not journey to the center of the earth um uh the lost world uh yeah, it's the lost world uh uh when when the lost world is published um uh, there's like you know there's a, a a book plate, like a plate in it, right here is Professor Challenger, the main character of this novel, and it's uh Conan Doyle in costume as his protagonist,
0: it's rad too, he looks smug as
1: shit mm-hmm. he's awesome, it's like what a cool guy i being being a writer at this time period must have just been so much fun because it was sort of unburdened by like the the later kind of like weight of fandom and you could just be like i'm a fan of my own characters and i am going to cosplay them and then put those things in the book um yeah i mean uh, and and uh, this you know these get talked about i, I didn't write down
0: the word that uh that Doyle uses for it, but it's basically hoaxes. Yes. <laughs> you know, purposeful hoaxes because that like heightens the effect of the writing because mm-hmm. it's like more fun to hoax everybody. Yes. And, that's, and uh, that's, the, that's true. Yeah. That's factually correct. It is more fun to hoax everybody.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, that's a term that actually he draws out of Lovecraft because that's the thing that Lovecraft says is he thinks of mm. his sort of uh, his imagination process, right? As he thinks of himself as devising a hoax. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah and there's uh the there's also discussion of uh Poe here as well Poe's doing a very similar kind of maneuver um in oh, yeah. some of his yeah. earlier work mm-hmm. um yeah well a, a few different things right yeah um but yeah so there's a thing the the other move that happens so i mean basically this chapter this chapter two is kind of like walking through that and how it happens and why it's happening and how these different authors are like specifically doing this you know kind of enlivening the way that people interact with their their work you know making mm-hmm. the things feel more real um through this kind of mechanism of a hoax essentially um and uh then but then gets into a spot of like habermas in the public sphere yep um and this drives the rest of the book mm-hmm. which is that Saylor argues that the way that all of these people come together around these works and kind of all, quote unquote, inhabit these virtual worlds together constitutes something that's kind of like a public sphere in Habermas, which is like the ultimate uh, liberal market of ideas. Mm -hmm. You know, the idea that that people can all come together and have kind of uh, discussions and arguments about what the world should be shaped like and then push the world forward in some direction out of that sailor has a lot of faith that this is like a tempering and profoundly useful move Mm -hmm. um you know that it ultimately provides better outcomes and the rest of the book is kind of dedicated to proving that Mm -hmm. uh kind of is like a like a secondary argument Mm -hmm. uh you know beyond just reading these authors and how they're engaging uh, with virtual worlds Mm -hmm. I don't find this compelling at all. No. Uh I, I don't. I don't think that this is true, um, but that this is what's happening.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, 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 the, the fundamental assumption here, um, and this is like it's one of those things where you can really feel not just sort of the, the Habermas, right, which is, I think, in some ways over determining how this argument moves. But like it feels yep. like a 2012 book one of the fundamental assumptions here is that the public sphere uh, and specifically the public sphere of the imagination, which for sailor is uh, something like the letters section in these science fiction pulps uh, where Mm -hmm. people are writing in and sort of like, you know, debating their interpretations or trying to clarify like timeline details. If they're reading uh, uh, Conan Doyle's stories and things like that, all of, uh, all of these sort of like correspondence uh, realms of correspondence, right. uh, That, that pop up around different genres. genres or different uh, sort of fictional milieus. Um, All of these things are public spheres of the imagination and it is assumed that, uh, The existence of these things and participation in them is going to lead the uh, person engaging with them to some sort of view of anti-essentialism. It is going to temper Mm -hmm. their uh, perspective on the world because they're being forced to come into contact with people that they don't agree with. Uh, And that's going to make them be like, oh, maybe I should be more tolerant of other viewpoints. Right. That is kind of the logic here. and. Yeah, I, I don't think that's how the public sphere is uh, determined to work. <laughs> I think there's other things going on there. We end then with a, a kind of gesture forward to uh, World of Warcraft as a contemporary example of like a, a public sphere of the imagination in, in one of the handfuls of like explicit uh, game grabs that are scattered throughout this book.
0: hmm oh uh sorry before before you say that, I actually want to read the quotation here okay thing that I was just re- reviewing my notes so this is on um this is on page 99. Uh, quote, Indeed, by encouraging multiple interpretations of fictional narratives, public spheres of the imagination inculcated in many readers a greater tolerance for difference and an appreciation of pluralism. So, you know, that's the exact quote to what, what you were just talking about. There's no citation for this. Yes. Um, and over, like, the next couple pages, this argument gets played out a little bit more, but there are no substantive citations that that suggest that that pluralism is actually happening. As a product of this, Mm -hmm. Um, and I, you know, I, I have no idea. I don't. I honestly don't know what happens here. I don't think that there's like this is a difference. Uh, This is maybe a place to talk about this. This is just a historic a a difference in uh, history as a discipline versus like some of the things that we do or Mm -hmm. that I do. I, I should say, can't speak for you, Um, because uh, it it is quite common uh, in the history work that I've read for the historian to have read like a huge amount of archival information and just make unsighted claims that are based on that information. Mm -hmm. Um, That is a thing that occurs in history and uh, you know, where the archive itself is kind of being evoked and the historian's expertise is standing in to kind of narrativize and explain and kind of shortcut some of the things that they know to be true. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm not shocked to see like an unsighted claim of this, but this feels like such a, massive bombshell claim in the context of everything I know about the media mm-hmm. <laughs> that that I I would I really need more I just I, I can't buy that on face value mm-hmm. um especially being a part of like virtual worlds culture for my entire life right And in, mm-hmm. in video games and science fiction and fantasy uh tabletop role playing all of that kind of stuff I I only see, I mean, not only, I see lots of liberatory moments, but I see uh, much more dedicated words to policing the actions of others in ways that uh, punish novelty, that that punish additional diversity, that punish novel ways of engaging with this object, whatever it is, you know, kind of holding onto normative claims. I see that so much more than like celebrations of pluralism. That Mm -hmm. is not the dominant Form For any of this in my entire lifetime. And so maybe the late 19th century was different. Maybe there were different claims being made. Maybe our definitions of pluralism are different. I don't know. Mm -hmm. But I, I can say that that doesn't really line up with my experience here.
1: I mean the um, one page before that uh, so a lot of the examples of this type of thing that Sailor is going to point to are going to come out of those letter sections on the um mm-hmm. uh science fiction pulps and just one page before that quote that you just had uh is a sort of anecdote that Sailor uh uh encapsulates where someone writes into maybe amazing stories or something I don't remember but one of these pulps Um, basically complaining about the racism, like a reader writes in and is like, Hey, uh, there's like a lot of racism in some of these stories. And like a lot of people in this letter section, uh, are really gung ho about, about the racism, um, and I don't like this. And I think this is, you know, something that maybe we should uh, like consider critically as part of a, a reading community or whatever. Obviously, these are not the exact words. I'm paraphrasing. Um, mm-hmm. But then an editor writes a letter in response saying, uh, well, actually, we uh, run, quote, the gamut of opinion. Right. We, we let everyone write their opinions in and we publish them all. And that gives us a free space of ideas for uh, people to, to learn and grow as individuals. Right. It's all about free inquiry. Uh, right. And that's the that's the precise sort of tactic that I think um, it, you and me, Cameron, are going to be very cynical about uh, in, in the contemporary moment where saying like, well, we let everyone uh, voice their opinions, even when they're or especially when they're horrible. Uh, And that helps us all grow by engaging with those ideas. Uh, I I think, you know, any anyone listening right now uh, has right to be skeptical of of claims like that.
0: Yeah, just don't And maybe that, you know, that's just a condition of the time we live in. But this is an argument that is most often deployed by people who um, are deeply uninterested in other opinions. And it is the gesture of openness, in fact, that is the thing that. That works, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, debate me, yeah. right? <laughs> uh, that 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 is uh, the terms at which, you know. I tell my students all the time. I love to negotiate with my students. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I oh hey, what's this assignment look like? Should we change it? Whatever. And I, I tell them first, whoever no- invites you to the negotiating table has an advantage, mm-hmm. <laughs> and so you should be, negotiate knowing that you are at a disadvantage if you are invited to negotiate. Mm-hmm. Right. If you're not meeting as equal partners, then negotiations are going to be unequal, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think similarly, uh, invitations to absolute open and free speech, one has to be uh, maybe a little bit cynical about the terms under which that is um, open to people. Mm-hmm. But not to belabor the point, but I just wanted to make sure that that, that kind of uh, the, the flag of citation was planted here. Mm-hmm. Um, the but you were talking about World of Warcraft, sorry. Oh,
1: I just I wanted to bring it up because this is Game Studies Study Buddies, and if we want to see the points where Sailor is like connecting this explicitly mm-hmm. to games culture, um, this is a quote that he pulls. Uh, this is from page 102. It, and it here means World of Warcraft, um, uh, and this is a quote from a... Uh, I'm going to... It's a quote from Bobby Kotick. Wow. This is... But, yes. I mean, obviously, Sailor did not know anything about the the current Bobby Kotick situation in in 2012. Um, But this is a quote from Bobby Kotick that Sailor uh, pulls in as kind of like uh, part of the scaffolding here. Um, So it meaning World of Warcraft has as much in common with Yahoo message boards or MySpace or Facebook or anything else. And it's very powerful once you start thinking of games in that way. So this is part of like games as being a kind of like elaboration or extension of that public sphere of the imagination. Um, mm-hmm. And so he, he uh, uh, sailor pulls this quote in saying like here, right. We see uh, like an important, he doesn't name Kodak uh, in the text. Incidentally, I actually looked this up because I'm like, I wonder who said this. Um, But he was like, you know, here is, here's like a CEO of a major game developer, like sort of making my point that these are public spheres of the imagination. I guess
0: that's kind of it. That's the, I mean, not the whole book, but that's the, the big sketch, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Yep. Oh, Second Life also shows up here too. I think earlier in the book, but we didn't talk about it, but a similar argument. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I, I don't, I, these feel like peer review comments to me or, you know, peer review responses where it's Mm -hmm. like, Hey. you're talking about this you should probably talk about like actual virtual worlds and so each chapter has like a paragraph at the end and this one that you're reading from is a little bit more substantive than that but they have these little gestures to like here's how this idea helps us understand these virtual worlds Mm -hmm. which is helpful and good i think i think it's a good kind of anchor to
1: grab onto if you want to use this book in a specific, explicit game studies context Uh, so the next chapter, and I think we can maybe bust through these a little more quickly, uh, just because they are case studies. Uh, the next chapter is Clap If You Believe in Sherlock Holmes, Arthur Conan Doyle, and Animistic Reason. So this is all about Sherlock Holmes. Um, and another one of those things where if this book had uh, come out maybe two years later, it would be so different because this this just missed. Uh, just missed the complete explosion of the contemporary of the, what, what the hell's his name? Russell T Davies uh, uh, and Mark Gatiss, uh, their, their Sherlock thing for the BBC with Cumberbatch. Um, oh, that I was like, I have no idea what you could be talking about. I don't know who these people are, but I do know that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it right. really did. It completely like not overturns this argument, uh, but like uh, extends it in a way that this argument cannot anticipate in 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 ways that i think would just be fascinating for a uh, sailor to have been able to really engage with because this is all about Ooh, yeah. how uh you know the sherlock holmes fandom comes to be when uh conan doyle is writing those stories and all of the weird crap that happened as a result of it
0: well it also yeah like uh, i guess that kicks it off right but i guess we're still kind of living in like the the new emergence of sherlockania right mm-hmm. like elementary that tv show all of those like uh guy Ritchie films mm-hmm. uh you know it's uh sherlock holmes has become like uh i don't know like a, ma- I can't maybe this was always the case i don't know but like a mass culture backbone like at the end of the day a thing you can depend on is that somewhere someone is making something with sherlock <laughs> holmes in it and you could probably check it out this very moment mm mm-hmm um and that's that's pretty weird that's not the case with everything Mm -hmm. um you know we got to wait a long time between james bonds
1: yeah i mean well and the other big thing is that this entire chapter ends with kind of um the i think what was a fairly accurate maybe uh sense in uh sherlock studies i guess uh Mm -hmm. which is that there's a weird way in which sherlock holmes uh isn't like never moves forward in time. If you're going to do a Sherlock Holmes story that people are really going to gravitate toward, it's gotta be set in, you know, foggy old London. Um, And then, of course, like the new Sherlock comes in and just completely obliterates that that uh, presupposition, uh, partly, I think, uh, because it manages to activate like the the fandom elements of Sherlock in a contemporary mode uh, rather than uh, keeping that character sort of focused on sort of the 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 nostalgia may be inherent that is not, not not maybe not inherent, right? This is another thing mm-hmm. that a uh, sailor gets at um, that they're like, Sherlock does not necessarily start out as a nostalgic property, but then in the 30s and 40s after, you know, the world wars, that's when people start looking back at these stories taking place just before those war- wars with uh, some real rose colored glasses is like this is the world before, uh, you know, the 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 shrieking hell of uh, mass industrialized warfare came to us. Mm hmm.
0: Yeah, that's kind of what all three of these chapters are, which is like what, uh, you know, because chapter three, four, five, they are all kind of case studies, right, Mm -hmm. as we've talked about, and all of them kind of have that tone to them of like, what, what did the people make of it, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and what are maybe the reasons for going back to it, but um, there's some interesting stuff here. Oh, the, the, why I was getting my wires crossed on Doyle and Lovecraft is that Lovecraft talks about the hoax thing. Uh-huh. Doyle call calls his fairies thing. Epic making. Yes. Which I think is very cool. What a great,
1: what a great <laughs> phrase for that. Um, Oh yeah. We, we but, start yeah. with, by the way, uh, the famous incident in which, uh, uh, Conan Doyle, um, uh, famously kind of a debunker of hoaxes, uh, in some ways, uh, falls for a hoax where some girls, uh, claim to have discovered some fairies living in their backyard. And there are pictures, uh, that circulate that are, are sort of, you know, they, they, causes causes a stir on the scene. And when you look at them now, it's like very clearly these girls posing with like little paper cutouts, like little paper dolls or whatever. Um, and the, the important thing here for sailor is that Conan Doyle, like, uh, creates this character of Sherlock Holmes, like the epitome of rationalism, uh, and then uh, goes in on this fairies thing and it causes like the Sherlock Holmes readership uh, in, in large part to be like, he does not know what he is talking about and just like sort of <laughs> ignore him.
0: <laughs> yeah, he, uh, yeah. What uh, really got taken in by those fairies. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe that's why they ignore him as a writer. <laughs> yeah. it was like, well, I don't know. I don't know about that. He might have struck, uh, struck gold on this one thing, but... Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, so I, the, the chapter is, I think, pretty linear in argument. I don't know how much is here for us to actually talk about. kind of talks about multiple types of readers of Sherlock Holmes. Mm-hmm. Uh, says that there's an ironic reader that's, that knows that Sherlock Holmes is not true and yet acts as if it is, right? This is our kind of double consciousness as the phrase is being used mm-hmm. in this book. And then the naive reader who's like, yeah. Just I love Sherlock Holmes being immersed in Sherlock Holmes.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, it's like people, people writing into the magazines who are because uh, the Sherlock stories are presented as John Watson's like, mm-hmm. you know, case notes from the things that he's done with Sherlock. We have people writing into the magazines uh, as if uh, John Watson is, in fact, just like providing direct reportage. Uh, mm-hmm. And to some extent, like these are people who are clearly like uh In on the joke or uh, to put it a different way, their Twitter reply guys who think that the best thing to do is to reply to your joke with like uh, uh, an elaboration of that joke to let you know that they are also in on the joke. Mm -hmm. And then they're
0: uh, completing
1: the Mm punchline that that you didn't write in because that's the joke. Right. Uh, But Mm -hmm. then there are also the the other people who write in the other Twitter reply guys who seem to think that. Uh, this is true, right? Like a, that, like it's not a joke that you're not being ironic that, that there's, there's mm-hmm. always like this possibility for the person who uh, falls for the bit in a way that it's not intended. Yeah,
0: Um, and that's kind of like the whole chapter ultimately, mm-hmm. uh, The there's a lot in here. I I think this is actually, you know, this chapter feels the furthest away from the actual arguments of the book to me, Mm -hmm. um, because it mostly seems to be interested in talking about Holmes as this kind of as the figure of the ironic
1: imagination. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, it says that it says this is a thing that's wild. Um, mm -hmm. It is Holmes. Not Conan Doyle, right? This is how, yeah. how it is phrased by Sailor. It is Holmes who, quote, expanded the definition of rationality beyond a narrow means-ends instrumentalism to include the imagination, resulting in mm-hmm. the more commodious form of animistic reason that imbued its objects with meaning.
0: Yep. And so, you know, be- because Holmes... uh can solve a mystery and play the Stradivarius, right? He's kind of this, uh, connecting fusion figure to, you know, uh, evoke this like holistic, you know, mm-hmm. imagination. Well, it's
1: like he can see the scuff on your shoe and he can know immediately by like the positioning of the scuff and the type of scuff that it is that you did this type of thing, or you have this type of job, right? Like that's mm-hmm. sort of what animistic reason is, is this ability to like apprehend a thing and then be immediately able to like, uh, figure it into, like, this complex and dynamic life world.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, and the evidence of that is, like, Holmes's artistic capabilities and things like that. Mm -hmm. You know, we're supposed to read, Sailor argues, we're supposed to read all of these, like, personality quirks. You know, uh, Sherlock Holmes is not a robot. Mm -hmm. And is in fact, his not being a robot that enables him to do, to make that kind of leap of investigation that you were just talking about mm-hmm. and that's kind of what the whole chapter is about uh, it's got a lot of great anecdotes into in it if you're interested in learning what these like uh Sherlock holmes fans were up to uh they one i really like the one where they all went to reichenbach falls or whatever it's mm-hmm. called and restaged moriarty and holmes falling off the thing mm-hmm. i wrote this quote down it's amazing there was some so it's all these people from the uk who go and do it and some of which who were like very high up in the UK government. Mm-hmm. It's like a cabinet minister who's playing Sherlock Holmes. Yes. And uh, but I really like uh so this is on 121. There's like a French newspaper writer goes to it. And uh, this is the quote that he wrote about it. I love it. To come all this way to make fools of themselves so delightfully, such a British thing to do. <laughs> oh, take that, Britain. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh but, but yeah, that's kind of like the payoff the payoff is a reading as you just kind of said the payoff is a reading of holmes as a as a character who in is able who demonstrates this kind of uh double capability mm-hmm. of both fun and fancy free and also rationalization mm-hmm.
1: uh chapter four then is uh from virtual unreality to virtual reality h p Lovecraft and public spheres of the imagination. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know. Uh, if you know this, Cameron. I don't know if you know this, listener. Uh, I'm kind of a Lovecraft guy. <sighs> uh, you know, I if if I were
0: to list off the types of guy that you are. mm mm-hmm. Uh, cowboy. Uh huh. Uh, what was the other? Darling boy. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Darling. Uh, boy. Science guy. Uh huh uh lovecraft guy yeah it's yeah, right in there yeah
1: yeah it's <laughs> going down my list yep <laughs> number four uh here's me it's me lovecraft michael then nah, nah, then nah. mm. i wish i were well, an aristocrat
0: um <laughs> well let me uh can, can i skip because i feel like you got a lot to say here. i do okay so like can i schematize sk- uh, at the top yes. and then then you can kind of fill in uh-huh Uh, because I feel like it's going to be real hard for us to get through the chapter uh, if we pause every time, Mm -hmm. you know, for for what we both want to say, because I also have some, I'm not a Lovecraft guy, but I, you know, I know a bit. And uh, this is a weird one for me. But anyway, uh, big upshot of the whole chapter is that uh, Lovecraft is a demonstration of the pluralistic capabilities of these imaginary worlds. Mm -hmm. That's like the upshot of the end of it. Chapter... Uh, opens with this idea that what makes Lovecraft interesting as a figure is that he uh, ultimately takes uh, the move to cosmic horror Mm -hmm. broadly out of like the earlier fantasy, more fantasy based Lovecraft work is one of becoming more of a rationalist. So Mm -hmm. the further that Lovecraft himself as an author or as a person or, you know, as a, as a figure um, comes to appreciate and enjoy rationalism for its own sake. Mm-hmm. Uh that's the more we get like maps, the, you know, the Arkham, the Lovecraftverse, Lovecraftia, whatever it's called, Lovecraft Country. Uh, lo- Lovecraft Country. Yeah, but although not the, the literal <laughs> Lovecraft Country. Um the 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 drive to make that happen, to create this kind of fictional world of Lovecraft is a byproduct of Lovecraft himself becoming more of a rationalist thinker. And then ultimately cosmic horror with its creatures who don't care if humans live or die and it's kind of indifferent universe broadly. That is all a byproduct also of Lovecraft looking at scientific developments during his lifetime and recognizing that humans are kind of infinitesimal in the grand scheme of things. Mm -hmm. And so this is a reading of the virtual world that lovecraft creates as a kind of byproduct of rationalization and so when the next generation well i guess lovecraft's um while he's living has a generation of fans but then the kind of explosion of lovecraft follow-on stuff and all of that that's enabled by you know so uh, august derleth you know mm-hmm. all these people uh, fritz lieber these people who are engaging with lovecraft's inventions the other uh contributors to weird weird tales who are like referring to old ones or whatever mm-hmm. all of that capability that kind of artistic uh potential is only possible because of this kind of infusion of rationalism into this uh horror fanta- fantastic world that lovecraft builds mm-hmm. and again that pays off in a very real world kind of impact at the end of the the chapter Arguing that ultimately Lovecraft turns away from the virulent and awful racism that we know about Lovecraft. He turns away from that toward the end of his life, precisely due to the pluralism that is afforded by his writing and the connections that he has in his life around those things. Mm -hmm. Um, That is the sketch of the chapter, Mm -hmm. broadly. Yes. Um, I I now turn it over to you, Michael, (laughs) um, uh, to do what thou wilt. Right. As Sephiroth once said. Yes.
1: <laughs> uh so the uh the thing that is happening here, um, that I don't necessarily disagree with, right? This sort of like uh this description of uh Lovecraft's kind of genre moves, I think, is actually pretty accurate. Uh <gasps> uh Sailor is pulling a lot from ST Joshi, uh, who's like kind of the premier Lovecraft scholar, really. Um, and I have some qualms with like uh some of Joshi's uh like Maybe conclusions in in some of this regard, but like the, the argument there, right, is that basically like what Lovecraft did is he reinvented horror fiction by making it science fiction and then reintroducing horror. So whereas in kind of like old Gothic novels or like what would have been called, you know, uh, like terror fiction or something prior to this point, uh, it's about like ghosts and goblins and supernatural creatures Uh, and Lovecraft uh, sort of as a a hardcore scientific materialist, right, a materialist and determinist in many ways. um, He looks at a world where there is no supernatural element and then he tries to sort of get, uh, well, not tries to, he does get a lot of uh, fictional traction out of this idea of, well, what if every single time a human being encountered something they thought was a ghost or a mythological creature or a uh, god, right, uh, they were in fact encountering an ancient alien, basically, right? A thing that is not supernatural is in fact a part of a natural world that we ourselves cannot, uh, like, comprehend because our perspective is so limited and humans are so infinitesimal in the grand scheme of things. Um, So rather than uh, sort of speculating about like, uh, what if the world were like, what if it were an alternate history, right? Like what if something happened different in history or what if there was a guy who was really good at being a detective Uh, Lovecraft's kind of move is to say, okay, what if, Uh, All of this is all of the sort of like stuff that science tells us is true. Um, How do I build outward from that? Right. How do I uh, sort of scaffold outward and how can I sort of imagine like uh, a creature that could literally exist by uh, some interpretation of what science is telling me about the world, but which would uh, look to me uh, or any human for Lovecraft uh, as somehow uh, depraved or innately repulsive. Right. Um, something like Yog sothoth as this interdimensional being that just shows up as uh, like a bunch of colored spheres, but is still like really horrible to look at or, you know, the, the color out of space. Right. A, a, an entity lands on Earth uh, and the only way that people can see it is as a color that it has no name. It's a color that has not been seen before this thing showed up. So, it's something that exists in kind of like the visible spectrum of light, but at the same time it is outside the human apprehension of the visible spectrum of light. All right, that's all well and good um The thing that kind of ends up going missing here for me that is extremely important, and especially as we start thinking about like Lovecraft as he tempers his views on on uh, racism near the end of his life, which he kind of sort of does <laughs> um is that Lovecraft's entire game of speculation is in fact about, like, writing his prejudices into the laws of reality. It's not just simple, like, Lovecraft, like, learns science and then he creates this entire world uh, of... Uh you know interdimensional alien monsters that are going to destroy us um mm-hmm. and like the racism slips in as a byproduct right it's just kind of an accident of Lovecraft himself uh the very perspective that he has uh and like the way that he interprets those scientific findings he interprets them in such a way as to sustain his racist beliefs there's a bit where uh Sailor talks about how as you read Lovecraft's fiction um you can notice sort of more uh sympathy toward uh the The creatures, right? They stop being Mm -hmm. like creatures purely of horror. We start getting like these little moments of, um, maybe recognition Uh, and they're read in a much more liberatory mode than I would. So for instance, in the shadow over Innsmouth. Oh, just the, the, but the one
0: little like piece here that, that might be worth saying, right. uh, Based on the sailor book is that sailor basically is tracking the racism in Lovecraft based on representation. mm -hmm. And so uh, he, he is saying that, you know, the descriptions of creatures, the way that they are associated with, um, Lovecraft's racial prejudices, right, that, mm-hmm. that is where we see the racism in Lovecraft, you know, he's being very explicit, right, mm-hmm. so like when um, when like, you know, the Horror at Red Hook, you know, mm-hmm. famously racist um, uh, Lovecraft work, right, when that is associated with cultism and then, you know, the kind of creatures themselves are inhuman, um, insufficient to being, um, you know, uh, properly white, Subjects mm-hmm. that is where Sailor says the racism is, and and you are offering an additional interpretation of understanding where the where we see the racism in Lovecraft. Mm-hmm. I, I just wanted to to fill in that little gap there.
1: Right, right. the The point that I'm making is that uh, uh Lovecraft's very uh, like if I I will say yes, okay. Lovecraft gets a virtual world. Like I will agree to this. Uh, but the racism of Lovecraft is in fact built into that mode of thinking. Right. It, it's uh uh so when a sailor gets to uh, the shadow over Innsmouth, which is a story of a uh, sort of decrepit fishing uh, hamlet in uh, Northern Massachusetts called Innsmouth. Uh, the narrator goes to it and discovers that uh, a long time ago, the people who lived there made a bargain with some ancient aliens called the deep ones who are like fish people who live underneath the sea. Um, And uh, they have begun like for uh, the past, like. 200 years or something uh, have been interbreeding with the fish people. Uh, and so there's this thing called the Innsmouth look where people who are from Innsmouth, it's sort of like known, like, Oh, people from Innsmouth, they've got kind of these bulging eyes and so on. Um, and what the narrator discovers is that if you are, uh, you know, a product of one of these relationships in Innsmouth, you start out your life looking human. And then eventually by the end of your life, you are just turning into a deep one. And then you go and you live under the sea with all the other deep ones. Um, and the narrator then discovers he, in fact, has, uh, Innsmouth heritage and the story ends with him kind of like talking about like sort of giving in, uh, like thinking about how like, oh, I'm going to go dwell under the sea with my grandmother and, uh, we will know, you know, uh, glory and joy forever.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, this is read by sailor as kind of like, uh, an openness to otherness when, uh, This is a story about, like, miscegenation and degeneracy within a bloodline. Uh, The thing that Sailor also points out that Lovecraft is extremely anxious about because both of his parents, like, his father uh, got a really bad case of syphilis and, like, became very mentally ill, spent the rest of his life in an institution. His mother had some sort of nervous condition. Uh, Same thing happened to her. So Lovecraft lives his entire life uh, concerned about, like... The like, when is, when is like, uh, the genetic horror in my background going to like snap its teeth closed on me? Um, mm-hmm. so there's that. Uh, there's, yeah, it's, it, it is, it is, uh, the, the end's mouth, the way I've always
0: heard the end of that story read, right? Or understood that to be read. And even before like reading anyone else's interpretation of it, right? When I read that story originally, it, it, it's the horror of what if, what if I'm not what I think I am? Mm hmm. Right, it's not. Oh, dang! Awesome, I got like a cool cultural heritage. Yeah, it's not what's <laughs> happening there. It's the absolute horror of knowing that your body is not your own, mm-hmm. um, it, which is based on, like you just said, a fear of miscegenation. Mm-hmm. What if I'm not white? Is is the the horror at the end of that thing? Mm-hmm. Um, it is it is inextricable from that, right? Which is why. Um, so this is like kind of the whole move that that Ruthanna Emrys's work in Winter Tide and those. I, I think there are other books. I've only read the first one, but the whole move is actually the positive move, quote unquote. That's being that that sailors interpreting into Lovecraft here, right? Mm-hmm. Ruthanna Emrys takes this and takes the deep ones and kind of ends mouth and um you know says okay well well if these people are you know a a kind of a racialized stand-in then like what are the effects of that and then what does it mean for them to have culture and all kinds of things like that so um i i think i i think even reading someone who is taking this and trying and not trying doing the work that that sailor claims is already kind of there really
1: points to the insufficiency of Lovecraft getting there. I just mm-hmm.
0: don't, I don't agree with the reading of the ending of the thing. Yeah. But anyway, yeah. sorry, go I ahead.
1: mean, so the same thing happens, just in brief, with uh, Lovecraft's novel, uh, The Mountains of Madness, uh, mm-hmm. where uh, Sailor points to this as a moment where, so that's, it's about an Antarctic expedition, uh, they go, they uncover some, like, horrible alien corpses, uh, a, you know, a vast uh, uh, decaying city that's, like, in the uh, uh, Arctic wastes. Um, And, uh, it turns out that there was this, uh, civilization of alien creatures called the old ones who existed on earth a long time ago, uh, through a kind of like incidental move, it's revealed that they created humanity by accident. They were like very advanced. They could do all sorts of genetic manipulation, so on and so forth. Um, and sailor points to this as a, uh, sort of example again of Lovecraft kind of softening his views on the other because there's a point in that novel where a character, uh, like insists, like uh, regarding the old ones, Uh, They were men, right? Meaning men there in kind of the the general universal sense, right? They were were basically human beings. They were men. They had civilization. They had science. uh, They had all these things. And so that's supposed to be a positive. But the thing that is not talked about is that that character is making that claim because... Uh, they have just discovered that uh, as part of their program of genetic engineering, the old ones created a slave caste that overthrew them and destroyed them. So that is what makes them men for Lovecraft, right? That is what makes them uh, uh, civilized, is that they had a slave cast and then they were undone by it. Like, it's, it's like tragic humanism for these, like, weird slave uh, master aliens. So... Yeah, just saying (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) that was also, uh, you
0: know, also knowing uh, the Mountains of Madness story, it was pretty, pretty odd to read that that reading of it.
1: Uh, But we do end with uh, the fact that toward the end of his life, Lovecraft, who had been uh, an open supporter of Hitler, um, sort of softens his views, Uh, by which I mean, uh, Lovecraft, by the end of his life, it becomes more open to ideas of socialism. Um, and this is like true, right? We look at his correspondence and this is true. Like he, he basically, uh, uh, when, when, uh, Lovecraft finds out, uh, sort of like the actual, like, uh, situation on the ground in Nazi Germany, he stops talking about how much he likes Hitler. Um, there, like, there does seem to be something there that happens where he sort of turns again. He's like, oh, oh, actually maybe all of my shitty opinions have bad consequences. Um but anyway
0: yeah you kind of he might he's uh lovecraft was a little bit of what we might call like a like a keyboard nazi
1: yes exactly yeah, the 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 perfect example of this this is a quote um, from one of his letters <laughs> quote i cannot abide any intellectual point of view short of the most advanced
0: yeah right okay like howard the, the dude hanging
1: out in providence Banging out letters all the time and
0: writing his weird stories and had basically one real life experience for one year and it shattered him as a human being, Mm -hmm. right? Like he just couldn't handle like being around people. I mean, he, he goes to New York and writes the horror at Red Hook, right? right? Um, These things are intimately related. And so, um, yeah, he, he was someone who was deeply, um, you know, beyond the pale uh, uh, when it comes to, his uh, eugenicist, racist beliefs, mm-hmm. and uh, he got some life experience. Uh, apparently, Robert Howard, I didn't know this. I don't know enough about, you know, the kind of relationship between the two of them, but apparently Robert Howard sat him down and was like, hey, you idiot. <laughs> Listen to what I have to tell you about why you're wrong <laughs> and, uh, and you know, why you're, you're being a big racist. I, I don't really associate Robert Howard with being particularly enlightened yeah. when it comes to this stuff, but may, I certainly probably more uh, progressive in the broadest sense of the term, uh, than Lovecraft was, but, but yeah, so Lovecraft softens his blow, his beliefs and sailor kind of reads that as a symptom of the pluralism that he necessarily was involved in by being part of like an author and reader community.
1: Yeah, exactly. Like that's, that's sort of the, the, those are the dots that are connected, um, Mm -hmm. And again, I don't know if I would put as much weight on that particular interpretation. I think uh, Lovecraft's experience in New York City, uh, the sort of like knowledge of what's happening on the ground in Nazi Germany, sort of the reality of that, uh, plus the fact that he uh, by the end of his life has is more poor than he has ever been before, uh, Mm -hmm. like spends the last year of his life, like basically just traveling around eating beans out of a can because that's the life like he can. He can do that, right? But there's also not much more he could do. Uh, And Mm -hmm. still, even as he's kind of uh, opening his mind to the ideas of socialism, uh, you know, getting kind of more on board with that, is nevertheless committed to building his own political perspective that is, like, socialism, which is still going to kind of insist on uh, the importance of, like, Uh, the coherent and essential nation or uh, uh, you know, the the nation over like the broad populism of the people that he calls quite explicitly fascistic socialism. So like, you know, mm, softens in some ways, in other ways, there are certain presuppositions for Lovecraft that I think don't get very challenged. Yeah. I mean, it seems to be
0: uh, that, that to me seems to be related to the fiction
1: move, right? Where, even if
0: like the the players on the board mm-hmm. b- become softened right become slightly more progressive become a less you know horrifyingly racist you know however you want to phrase it the structure of the board is one you know of unknowable high intelligences playing some weird you know chess game of reality and uh, uh, you know, I don't know. Look, it feels a lot like the protocols of the Elders of Zion, <laughs> mm-hmm. right? Like it, there, there's a kind of anti-Semitic imagination that is fueling a lot of the broad perspectives that seems to be existing here. And then they still are creating, you know, mutant species that you know, reek of miscegenation and um, you know polluted bloodlines. Mm-hmm. I, I, you know, I don't know. I, it maybe better than you started, but I don't. I don't know what the ceiling is on that. Mm-hmm.
1: So, I mean, that's that chapter, and then the final chapter is The Middle Positions of Middle Earth, J.R.R. Tolkien and Fictionalism. Broad strokes, or sort of schematically, formally, this is a very similar chapter to the previous one, which is, uh, here is J.R.R. Tolkien, a person who created a sort of, uh, you know, fictional world or sort of a series of uh, fictions that implied a world that a whole bunch of people really got on board with, and it all kind of got out of hand. Uh, that guy had a lot of really weird, uh, uh, sort of conservative, not so great, not very modern opinions on things. And here is how the creation of that world, that fictional virtual world, and sort of like the, the consequences of dealing with it, uh, put that creator in a position to uh, soften their perspective on some of their more hardline beliefs from earlier in their life. So in Tolkien's case, uh, you know, how do we go from um, uh, Tolkien thinking about like the, the, the essential Englishness. uh, Actually, Tolkien is interesting because he gets kind of like multiple moves, right? Tolkien starts out with uh, what's going to become the middle earth legendarium thinking through uh, like, It's very indebted to like uh, Northern European mythological cycles. Um, the sort of like warrior society kind of thing how does that shift into uh like what ends up becoming sort of the centerpiece of the, of the tolkien project uh the hobbits as this kind of imaginary uh version of what uh sailor refers to as little england right bucolic uh uh friendly farmer folk who who don't care much for the big city ways and kind of live happily uh in uh, a you know a, a society right they have houses and things they're doing farming they're doing agriculture but they live kind of in balance with nature in a way that uh speaks to their reverence for uh tradition and uh you know they don't need all this hubbub and bubbub about industrialization and and things like that um how do we go from sort of the warrior culture to that to uh like, I mean, Tolkien's sort of reception to the reception of his works. Uh, another high point of this book for me was uh, getting to read Tolkien talking about how much he hates his American fan base. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he calls it uh, my deplorable American cultus. Jesus. Uh, like he and there and there are legal books. Yes, he he thinks that um uh because America does not like the American youth broadly speaking don't have a proper grounding in religious belief, uh, and so they are like taking on his story as a supplement to a larger absence in their lives because his story first and foremost <laughs> is supposed to be a kind of supplement to uh, a Christian worldview, a Christian perspective. mm Hmm. Well, uh, sometimes you call them. (laughs) I don't. (laughs) Uh,
0: You know, I I, I would say that kind of has to do with all of these that show up in this book where uh, people are investing a lot of time in these things. And in a different time, that would have been invested in other stuff in their life. I don't know if that would necessarily have been religion, Mm -hmm.
1: but it's part of it. I mean, that's. I might say it's religion, but yes. Like, my. One of my arguments about this book is just like. It's showing us how, like, uh, capitalism, right, how consumer capitalism, how the market recaptures kind of all of this free-floating imaginary energy that, you know, in Europe, I guess, prior to the Protestant Reformation, would have been more fully devoted to things like memorizing the lives of the saints.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Right? Thinking about what they were up to. Exactly.
0: Retelling the lives of the
1: saints, even. Yes. Right?
0: doing your own riff doing your 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 saint anthony fanfic Mm -hmm.
1: right like uh having like thinking about how saint anthony's life uh speaks to your own and how you can follow saint anthony's example and what does that teach you and so on and so forth right these are these Mm -hmm. are things that would have been happening and then uh the protestant reformation happens in england uh and suddenly you're not allowed to do this stuff anymore and we get the emergence of my favorite thing the early commercial theater Mm hmm.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I've i done similar. It's really weird to read the sailor book and kind of think about the the you know, I wrote my dissertation on like a way, ways that people think about the end of stuff mm-hmm. in a general sense. Right. And uh, so I, I did a big, you know, history theory chapter, blah, 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 whatever on tracing the move from religious apocalyptic apocalypticism to secular apocaly- apocalypticism. And, you know, similar move. It's really kind of weird to see these as kind of like complementary projects because, you know, what I traced in that is like, yeah, there's a broad European and American um, fascination with the world ending that has one particular character in the 19th century. And then as it moves into the 20th century changes Mm -hmm. substantially, particularly after 1945. Uh, it changes quite a lot. Um, you know once you have the nuclear weapon and like a doomsday device, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, you know the, the way we imagine things ending are quite different. And so yeah, to me, this just uh, similarly, I don't know if I would say it's entirely religion, but I think that's a big chunk of what these imaginary worlds uh, you know if, if we imagine all the time that a human being that has in their life is like a pie chart, you know, uh, religion used to take up like forty percent. And then that went away, and then now uh, these fictional worlds take up, you know, some percentage of that, too. But, um, you know, I I don't know, maybe you want to kind of move granularly through the chapter. I'm not quite sure, but the other kind of maneuver that happens here, right, is that... Sailor is really interested in, again, in this public spheres argument, mm-hmm. um, as, as you were saying, about how Tolkien softens uh, specifically himself. But but I, more than uh, in the previous chapter, ends up talking about kind of the reader uh, communities around mm-hmm. it. And maybe just because there's a little bit more access to that kind of thing. And they were later. So there's a lot of zines and zine culture and things like that. Um, fan club culture is already well established in the 70s mm-hmm. when or The Rings really explodes in the mid-70s um but uh yeah so but make some moves that I'm quite unclear about right so like neo nazis are reading Lord of the Rings in the 70s and 80s and 90s mm-hmm. neo nazis are reading Lord of the Rings and saying yeah this is like a story of racial superiority and of like the good and and the just in the face of like you know the racialized figures mm-hmm. <laughs> that exist there right But side note, right? In games culture, it seems like every two or three years, someone writes an article that are like, orcs are raced. And then everyone has to be like, no, no, they're not. Let me tell you about, uh, you know, whatever the uh, token in his letters talking about it or whatever. Mm -hmm. The neo-Nazis themselves are saying this, right? They are identifying Mm -hmm. these very clear aesthetic alignments that are going on here, right? I don't think it's helpful to like disavow those things. It's in the bones of Lord of the Rings that these kind of racial schema um, and the, the neo-Nazis are finding that really powerful and helpful for them. Mm-hmm. And what, what I would encourage you, you know, I, I don't think sailorist response here is particularly helpful because sailor just says, well, look, they have an insufficient public sphere. Yeah. They're not getting enough opinions mm-hmm. about reading the Lord of the Rings. In fact, what we need are just more voices in order to prove them wrong. When really what the, the neo-Nazis are doing is they are schematically reading Lord of the Rings and mapping it onto the real world and Tolkien himself, you know, talks about the racial uh stereotypes that he's using. Sailor pulls on uh specifically dwarves being stand-ins for uh Jewish people mm-hmm. um and how he tried to change that and tried to kind of change the, the ethno uh relation there. Um, but kind of never got rid of it. He just became more positive about it. Yeah, <laughs> it's weird to read these quotes where Tolkien's like, "Yes, they're they're a greedy people," and then later in his life he's like, "Ah, but they have a strong and old culture." Mm-hmm. N- never mind. In my fiction, they were created by a demon, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or, or whatever. Right? They were created outside of the light of God and just happened to be uh, existing on you know uh, by function of divine grace. I don't know any of the specifics of this here. I'm just quoting the sailor on it. Basically sailor argues that over the course of Tolkien's career, he wrote more and iterated more on it to depower the kind of readings that the Nazis would later make or the neo-Nazis would later make and to depower the kind of ethnic stereotypes that exist within it, ultimately creating something that is bigger and better than that softening, you know, his conservatism
1: and, and uh, nationalism. Mm -hmm. And here, uh, you know, my critique in the Lovecraft chapter still kind of applies in in broad form, in that uh, Sailor is treating the speculative apparatus that Tolkien puts together uh, as essentially kind of potentially. Ideology neutral, Um, but we get a lot of quotes from Tolkien talking about, you know, this like Tolkien has a kind of entire aesthetic theory. Uh, When you are a writer, you are a sub creator, Uh, you're trying to create kind of a cohesive uh, second world, Uh, sort of famously, right? The Middle Earth grows out of Tolkien trying to come up with a fake language, and then uh, realizing that a fake language is much more persuasive when there is a specific world that that language is referring to. And so, uh, we get kind of the, the double invention of the language in the world at the same time, right. Where, yeah, you know, you can draw idioms from, uh, mythological, uh, antecedents and things like that. So, uh, there is, uh, you know, that's its own thing. Uh, but also like the way that Tolkien, uh, conceptualizes this and talks about this, uh, is for Tolkien, like. The act of writing is explicitly religious, right? The re-enchantment that uh, Sailor keeps trying to point out um, it's not just like the market kind of capitalizing on people uh, desiring kind of the sort of imaginative or cognitive stimulation that might have at one point been uh, taken up by religion or, or other sort of uh, communal pursuits. Um, here we can see in the same way that, uh, you know, H.P. Lovecraft uh, inscribes his racism into his speculative apparatus. Uh, Tolkien inscribes a certain sort of Christian thinking into his own speculative apparatus right uh, mm-hmm. uh, what he calls the um, the way that history moves as uh, a, a bunch of bad things and then suddenly all of these accidents coalesce in like one great moment of triumph so of course right here we're thinking of Gollum uh, biting off Frodo's finger and fall- taking the ring and falling into Mount Doom right all of this horrible stuff happened um, but in the end things worked out and the reason things worked out is because uh J.R.R. Tolkien is standing behind the scenes arranging all this stuff to make that happen which in his mind is analogous cuz this is what this is what for Tolkien creating is uh you are imitating god and you have to imitate mm-hmm. god in kind of the the most noble or best way that you think you can um so he ends up coming up with a providential history for Middle-earth providence you know being the idea that like everything that happens on the planet is like god working to his own mysterious end yeah his term for this is subcreation. yes uh so for instance uh recently on twitter where uh people were hollering about tolkien or like because that stupid tolkien fan site tweeted something about how uh uh the wheel of time and game of thrones television series are being abusive to their viewers by uh ignoring the sort of uh, like by having fantasy stories where bad things happen um, and not really focusing mm-hmm. in on kind of like the inherent nobility of the spirit or like hope and like the possibility of overcoming. Like what is happening there in kind of a sublimated fashion uh, is that fan account rearticulating Tolkien's religious perspective and making an argument for a religious perspective really uh, a religious relationship to fiction that does not recognize itself or does not like sort of openly disclose itself as religious.
0: Yeah. It, it is saying uh, that I don't, you know, that's the thing is I, you know, the vibe of that tweet in particular was very much like, I wonder, I wonder how much they know and how much they don't know. Right. It, it kind of felt like a veggie tales as you, yeah. as you <laughs> tweeted. It. Ultimately sailor reads this in a liberatory way, right? Like, The pluralism of what the virtual worlds affords allows these authors, or or transforms these authors in positive and useful ways. Right, softens their uh, hard uh, hard beliefs. You know, Lovecraft's racism, um, um, uh, Tolkien's racism and nationalism, and language focusedness Mm -hmm. of Northern Europe. Uh, J.R.R. Tolkien just broadly seems to be a pretty odd man.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, the the thing uh, we didn't okay. cover is that like so much of this like desire to fabricate like a secondary fantasy England is bound up in uh, much like Lovecraft. This anxiety that he himself was never going to be English enough because he was born in South Africa. Uh, and like he he we go through uh, his early life where he's like desperate to trace his family lineage back to the Anglo-Saxons. Yes.
0: He wants to be Anglo-Saxon so badly,
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, which, you know, if you've kept up with any, uh, <laughs> any, any of the developments in, uh, you know, the fields that study that, that, that is, you know, a deeply ideological project as well, even now mm-hmm. today. Um, so, so that's all to say, right. It ends up kind of in the same upshot, which is like, hey, look what the virtual world allowed, where he, it allowed him to go. But I, I can't get away from the neo-Nazis. I can't get away from, like, the just war theory people of, like, yeah, their interpretations are also valid. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the sense that, like, they are grounded in reading the object in front of them. And I don't think that, that the response of, like, well, they didn't think broadly enough. I don't think that just necessarily ends up in liberation or positive
1: outcomes. Mm-hmm. Um. You know, I think that's still pretty ambivalent. I mean, um, the the as if of the neo-Nazi is just as materially effective of the as the as if of uh, any reader who is not a neo-Nazi, right? They're both doing the yeah, same absolutely. thing.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, maybe can we actually talk about what as if means?
1: Uh, not really, because it doesn't quite always show up.
0: <laughs> yeah, it seems like it's kind of inserted here, but the as if is is uh, literally the ability to uh, entertain alternate causalities about the world but within these virtual worlds mm-hmm. so instead of the just so which is like this is how things are the as if is within xyz conditions what if something happened mm-hmm. and then you can like transpose that into all kinds of other scenarios in your life mm-hmm. but yeah there's nothing we there's no mechanism for us to understand why the neo-nazis are wrong and why like the slightly more you know uh, progressive people are right mm-hmm. Like, obviously, the neo-Nazis are wrong. They're not wrong because of the way they read The Lord of the Rings. (laughs) (laughs) They're wrong because being a fascist is bad. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's, uh, you know, violent and horrible or whatever. It's external to whatever the condition is of whatever they're reading, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And yet, um, Sailor really wants us to focus in on that as if that's the kind of core um, thing.
1: The book ends with a postscript that uh, sailor calls an envoy and I think the your note uh says something like what is this?
0: <laughs> yeah, I just don't uh, uh, this look in my eternal quest to abolish conclusions. Mm-hmm. Uh I believe that this should, this should the book should just end. Yeah. Here. This is not this is like a weird thought
1: experiment. Yeah, so so the envoy um here like this is uh Notice listener, uh the philistinism of my compatriot kunzelman here uh the envoy mm-hmm. is a figure that derives from the history of poetry-huh uh the envoy is the name that you give to like a short little stanza that you put at the end of a poem uh that is sort of like addressed to the reader and sort of uh accounts for what you think are maybe their most likely responses. Um, envoy, of course, right, uh, we have that word in English outside of this context, right? It's some, uh, the envoy is someone that you uh, send ahead as kind of a messenger or whatever. Uh, in this way, the envoy in the poem is supposed to be kind of a closing move um, that sends the reader back out into sort of the non-poetic world by way of sort of uh, imagining a hypothetical reader response and then uh, uh, reacting to it. And that's what Sailor does in this conclusion, which is basically like, uh, what if it's this uh, sort of counterfactual, like this book gets published, it gets super famous. uh, I appear on Oprah Winfrey's show. She chooses it for her book of the month club. uh, I'm constantly being interviewed about it. And here are the things that I say. Uh, And it's sort of just then like a summary of the book's main points and like what Sailor wants uh, for you to have as kind of your takeaways, you know, again, sending you back out into the world.
0: Yep. Mm-hmm. And like it really tries to get out in front of I think some of the criticisms we've made of the book, yeah. which is very interesting. That's a it's a I guess a way of doing a conclusion. Mm-hmm. Um uh yeah, I thought I thought it was fine. I don't I don't know. I'm I'm just not I'm not in it for the, the aesthetic flair. Mm-hmm. I will say that I'm positive that Sailor is a better writer than I am, mm-hmm. just narratively, but more skilled at writing. Mm-hmm. Undoubtedly. Certainly. I can also say it doesn't do a lot for me, so that's why maybe I'm not good <laughs> at it. <laughs>
1: Yeah. So that's that's the book.
0: That's it. Mm -hmm. We did it. I, I thought it was great.
1: Mm -hmm. I think this is a book that uh, I'm going to be thinking about a lot in the future. Uh, It's a good Mm -hmm. book uh, to think with, but also, you know, you can pick up on this in in my response. Right. But to think against in certain ways. Right. Where do I differ from kind of this uh, view of these dynamics? And how does that matter? Uh, You know, doing reading this entire book, haven't said it at all during during this recording session, but doing a lot of thinking about Homestuck, Cameron.
0: Oh, yeah. Same. I I didn't bring it up on purpose, Mm -hmm. but um, yeah.
1: Definitely. Check out Homestuck Made This World, where we're going to talk about this book again, probably, at some point.
0: Yeah, we definitely will.
1: Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think, obviously, I'm, I'm
0: similarly critical of the book, I think, uh, but I agree with you. Very helpful to think with. I think broadly gets a lot of things right, mm-hmm. and I think uh, there are a lot of really cool ideas here, mm-hmm. here, especially in those first two chapters, that I think are really awesome. Like, I think this idea of virtual worlds and giving us language for talking about like what the hell is happening. Mm -hmm. That's, that's great. And that there's a strong, like history of these things occurring. It's, it's awesome. I think I am a a smarter person and a better informed person uh, about things, even in my own field that I didn't know too much about um, by having read this book. And I think that like, that's a good metric for a book. Mm-hmm. That, that's not the case with every book I read. I don't always feel smarter at the end. Yeah, I mean, I definitely uh, feel I can... like
1: this is a weird thing to say, but I do feel like my life is enriched like with a lot of the anecdotal stuff here, right? Like I am yeah. I'm going forward into the world knowing that W.H. Auden was RPing Gimli, uh, and I don't know what I'm going to do with that, but holy hell, isn't that a thing to know?
0: <laughs> yeah, people uh, called it the Hobbit habit, too. Yeah. <laughs> That 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 was like a common phrase, apparently, saying you were like a Lord of the Rings fan. You had a Hobbit hat. Oh god, like that a lot. Um, but yeah, you know, generally broad strokes. I think when it comes down, especially those last three chapters, just there's a lot of kind of upshot thinking that I just, you know, maybe I'm just too cynical, but mm-hmm. I just don't see it happening. Well, we're that cultural way. pessimists. Uh, well, that's true. <laughs> I, I'm definitely a cultural pessimist. That's the word Sailor gives to uh, us. Uh, people who don't. Uh, love mass culture, uh-huh. uh, you know. If if you don't like the Marvel Cinematic Universe, you're a cultural pessimist. I don't know what you're mm-hmm. Uh But uh, but yeah, and and part of it, uh, you know, it's just like pure vibes only, in the sense that my way of and my disciplinary training, you know, this going back to the ignorant schoolmaster, mm-hmm. it's a good way of thinking about this, right? I'm disciplined in a particular kind of way. I think about the world in a particular kind of way. When you're telling me huge, you know, a hundred pages about the communities of readers who are engaging with things and what they think and how they are, are interacting and how they know and how they communicate what they're saying. And the name Stuart Hall never shows up uh, or anyone in cultural studies. I just have big question marks. Mm-hmm. of like, well, we have really, really, you know, fine grained modes of, thinking about the way that, you know, to bring up the hall that messages are encoded and decoded mm-hmm. and none of that's here. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and it's here because of disciplinary reasons. He's after something slightly different and he's approaching it from a different angle. Um, but yeah, I just, you know, I, I would not, I would not make, uh, these claims in precisely this way mm-hmm.
1: for sure. What are we doing next time, Cameron? I don't know. Uh, I'm kind of interested in addiction by design. Uh, which is about sort of the invention of gambling machines.
0: All right, cool. Let's do addiction by design. Let's do that. That sounds All good. All
1: right. The social is predicated on its exclusions.